Welcome to Manifesto, a podcast. Your regular visit to the archives of vanity where men and women who stopped making myths turned to issuing proclamations. Your guides for this journey. My co-host, Phil Cly, author of the National Book Award-winning short story collection, Redeployment. Our crack producer, talented musician and recording engineer, Adam Kamara, and me, the knocker-off of tall hats, Jake Siegel. This week we have as our special guest, Michael Brendan Doherty. And uh, before we get started, I just want to say to you all, may you continue to be a person. This week we're going to be doing a trio of conservative manifestos. We're going to be looking at uh, three different manifestos, one by a group of authors called Against the Dead Consensus, one by Daniel McCarthy, called A New Conservative Agenda, and then finally, one by Gladden Pappin. The first two are in First Things, and the last one is in American Affairs, and that's Toward a Party of the State. And we're going to be looking at what it is in the post-Trumpian era, or perhaps we're still in the Trumpian era, what it is that conservatives who are trying to escape uh, the pre-Trumpian conservatism are articulating in their statements of purpose and where it is they'd like to lead us. And then we're going to be getting into uh, the truly excellent new book by Mr. Doherty here called My Father Left Me Ireland, which I would describe as a lyric memoir treatise on fathers, sons, and nationalism. And... Um, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Michael. Does that sound about fair? No, that's that's exactly right. Um, I didn't mean to write a memoir. I meant to write an, an argument that used, I don't know, my story as, a, as background information, but everyone calls it memoir, so I have to accept that now. I would say, and I don't mean this uh, at all to slight the polemical quality of the work, um, I would say that it, it principally evokes its argument, and I want to get more into the book, and we'll do that in the second half, but I would say that it principally makes its argument most compellingly through the personal rather than through a formal argumentative rhetoric. Which I think is, is sort of necessary for the form of argument that you're taking since it's all about sort of – cultural rootedness in the ways that we understand ourselves and in relationship to our past and through our families and local and national associations. So it would, but we can talk about that a little later. We will talk about that later because we're going to end up there because what each of these three uh, conservative agendas I just mentioned has in common in some sense is that they are grouped around an idea of nation and state. And I I don't want to say that all three are about nationalism because I think the Papin is the outlier there. And the Papin uh, in American affairs is not so much about a new nationalist approach to politics, though perhaps the nationalism is implicit and we can get to that. But what all three are about is a way of redefining the, the, the meaning and orientation of the uh, national polity. And let me just lay out in broad terms what I, I think is going on here. And as a part-time interpreter of conservatism, as someone who's interested in conservative intellectual ideas, though I don't identify 
as a conservative, I also am not uh, constitutionally hostile to conservatism, which I, I guess is like enough to make me uh, perhaps a crypto fascist in some circles. Perhaps you're, you're definitely suspect, Jim. right? Just uh, a sympathetic reader in other circles. But what I see going on is that the the attempt to formulate a new theory of conservatism is a response to a groundswell event, which is Trump, right? Trump didn't proceed from a theory of conservatism. There wasn't any articulated uh, platform of populist nationalism. Now, there was Bannonism, and we can get into sort of the ideas undergirding the Trump campaign, and there were obviously antecedents and precedents. There was Buchanan is an, an obvious touchstone. There are ideas cold from Nixon, from paleoconservatism, which I know you're familiar with, Michael, and, and those currents were there. However, those currents didn't produce Trump in any kind of causal way. Trump, more or less, with the people around him, produced himself in concert with the voters, in concert with a group of people Trump supporters, Trump voters who had been excluded from the establishment Republican vision of conservatism, which was not necessarily post-national, but a kind of globalized economy, a let's call it uh, free market-centric approach to not only matters of political economy, but also a kind of market individualist approach even to social questions. So let's say for a moment that was the old vision. The new vision is trying to come up with uh, what, what, is, uh, what is it that we got wrong in the past, right? In, in other words, what is it that the Republican and conservative establishment missed that it was so disaligned from this Trumpist wave? And where should we be going forward? Does that sound about right? I think that sounds right, yeah. There's a there's a nice bit in the uh, Papin uh, toward the party of the state where he says he quotes David Frum saying what conservatives are conserving after all Frum wrote glibly is a liberal order though this is Papin in a world of parapolitical neoliberal governance structures and globally mobile capital it is not clear what referent conservatives intend by the liberal order and so yeah. The Papin is the most abstract of the three, right? Papin makes a sort of theoretical argument about what liberalism is, yeah. is a theory of uh, and where the conservative ideology places in that. And then McCarthy has a kind of historical argument. And then uh, first things is sort of trying to put together programmatic. Well, I think actually the the against the dead consensus – so the against the dead consensus – Consensus is like six or seven authors. I know yeah. Saurabh Amari is one, uh, James Poulos. Deneen, Patrick Deneen. Patrick Deneen. So a number of people who are uh, mostly Catholic conservatives. though yeah, not it's definitely religiously inflected. Mm -hmm. Certainly uh, Christian conservatives. Um, and what they're getting at in Against the Dead Consensus is I think very much what we were just talking about, which is to say – the dead consensus is what I just outlined, right? Yep. So the dead consensus was the kind of establishment Republican consensus which accepted liberal premises about the place of the uh, market, the place of economic forces in relation to the individual, to the broader community, 
And it was that what they are calling the dead consensus, they view as really a capitulation to liberalism that ended up producing not only a enervated and defeated conservatism, but also a, you know, a, a liberal march through some of the institutions and now has resulted in this new alignment. And they're trying to say, like, in this new alignment, in this Trumpian era, we can no longer try to resurrect pre-Trumpian conservatism or cling to the premises of it. We have to get something new. Yeah, I think Against the Dead Consensus was also written. I may have been privy to some email chains that were um, going on as it was being drafted. I think it was written in the fear that um, some never-Trump commentators and activists would try to launch a bid heading into 2020 of like a pure restorationist bid for conservatism. And I think this was a this was a preemptive strike, a preemptive war on that effort. Um and uh, I'm I'm not sure it went all the way. I mean it it was very focused on religious issues. It you know it talks about even stuff that like is obviously Catholic in nature, mm-hmm. you know, about reproductive technologies that most religious conservatives don't particularly care about. We affirm the non-negotiable dignity of every unborn life and oppose the transhumanist project of radical self-identification. Right. Yeah. I think um, – I mean what is interesting is the – when you push some of these thinkers more and I think you might get this from McCarthy or if you pushed Sora Bamari or, or other – writers more they would say that insofar as conservatism um replicated or blessed a, a liberal project it was in a sense uh the liberal project itself was a form of secession of elites from their from their loyalties to their country mm-hmm. to whatever i mean you, that you're this attempt to free capital uh, people and goods to cross borders seamlessly, essentially what it creates um, – I mean maybe this is more my view sneaking in – is a, a network of hyper-connected uh, financial node cities that are mm-hmm. more – working more in concert with each other and increasingly um, – allowing their attached countrysides and suburbs and so on to fall into decay. Yeah. And um and I think that's the most powerful thrust of this because I think many of us, you know, approaching middle age maybe feel like we've seen some of this in our lives mm-hmm. that there is um a kind of uh, intellectual caste and our political class spends lots of time Jetting to London, to Paris, to ideas festivals in yeah. in Saudi Arabia. But hold on, I, I got to bring you back to sure, your sure. earlier point because you, now you're describing a kind of socioeconomic division, and I completely agree with the division you're describing and the typology. Right? I wrote something recently about homelessness in Los Angeles, where I talked about there being an archipelago of major, you know, finance cities, right? And the, this archipelago of cities are linked to each other 
New York, London, San Francisco, LA, and cut off from the broader uh, societies, the, the nations right. in which they're a part. Should, should we just outline very quickly what the Against, uh, against the Dead consensus, what they're advocating for? Because I think we can go through, I mean, they have yeah. basic bullets of, sure. you know, what yeah, it is. Sure. After, after, you know, basically railing against a um, individual autonomy as being like the highest good. Individual autonomy right. and like... This is the dead consensus. Right. This is the free market individualism. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they have like a series of sort of bullet points. We oppose the soulless society of individual affluence, right? We stand with the American citizen. We reject attempts to compromise on human dignity. We resist a tyrannical liberalism. We want a country that works for workers and we believe home matters. So those are their sort of top line items, right? Yeah. And what all of those get at, uh, is a good that exists outside of the demos, let's say, or like th- those bullet points articulate or um, yeah, I guess they articulate two underlying premises. One is uh, loyalties owed to a nation, right? To a specific group of people who are uh, who you would owe your loyalties to above the pursuit of say soulless affluence. Right. So a prioritization of the welfare of the citizen above uh, a kind of uh, – Designing a system that allows people at the top to maximize right, right there. Right. And that the, the people at the top don't have any uh, loyalty to the people beneath them and that the state has no – this is what they're going against, the idea that the state yeah. has no duty to restrain the people at the top or to force them in some way to be in some sort of political harmony. Right. Well, uh, well, even the idea that the state is neutral between whether the uh, laws and and that govern trade or the economic trends that are influencing it, right? Uh, that the state would be indifferent about whether that's enriching uh, an American middle class or uh, dispossessing them, right? And you know whether it's enriching uh, a Chinese middle class or building a Chinese middle class. So it's, it's it is saying that the government, that state too, has a loyalty to its citizens right. and, a, and a relationship to the culture, right? That you can't actually separate out this sort of notion of the common good and a notion of you know sort of economic policy and maximizing individual choice because the sort of tack that the government takes is going to affect the nature and composition of the family, the nature and composition of your civic life, cultural attachments, uh, and so on, seems to be the the sort of thrust. Yeah, and then I think the second point is, so there is a political good, and the political good is the welfare of the nation, of the citizens mm-hmm. within the nation. And then the second good, which you get implicit in the tyrannical liberalism and in the, the sacredness of the home, is the Christian moral good, mm-hmm. basically – our, our society must not prioritize the needs of the childless, the healthy, and the intellectually competitive. Our policy must accommodate the messy demands of authentic human attachments, family, faith, and the political community. And then, you know, the, and later there's there's a line. The Republican Party has too long held investors and job creators above workers and citizens, right? Dismissing vast swaths of Americans as takers unworthy of its time. Right? So this is a, a – Does it rebuke – I mean it seems to rebuke to the entire Romney campaign. And Rubio and Jeb Bush and to the whole 
establishment mm-hmm. that was upholding a dead consensus. Right. Um, but there are – Michael, tell me what you think of this. I mean you you know some of the thought that went into this. It yeah. seems to me that there are sort of two goods being articulated here and they're entwined. One is – uh, the good of the nation, the citizen prioritized above, you know, the the Chinese middle class was the example you cited. But the other is the moral good and that the state has a duty to um, not necessarily – I don't necessarily hear uh, clearly how the moral good would be promoted, but certainly to restrain uh, the immoral, it, that, that there is a good that has to do both with – the political economy and the nation, and also a good that has to do with culture and, and social yeah, policy. I think there is, a, a, you know, maybe it could be better articulated, but I think there's an instinct that the the market and its logic has been so privileged in conservative thought and in effectively in policy that the demands of the market on people and the reward and the rewards it's giving are effacing or or dumping uh, the family, the idea of home into a a kind of acid bath and dissolving it. Um, You know, underneath this would be, I'm sure, uh, worry about America's low fertility rate, Mm -hmm. about lower incidence of family formation, you know, Mm -hmm. fewer people getting married. And and in fact, not just in in viewing this as an active tragedy, right, that it's not just – um, people don't want to get married or don't want to have children, but that at least as far as we can tell from social science, which I'm I'm pretty skeptical about, people are saying they want more kids than they're having. They they want to marry and settle down and buy a home, but they're not doing it at the rate that they express well, it's, they it's want. It's brutally to hard, right? It's especially if you live in any of the kind of cities or where most them. of the jobs are or near them, right? Like yeah. you know, try and have a two bedroom apartment in New York City. Um, that's near train stations that you'll have a commute that's under like an hour and a half, it's going to be really, really expensive, right? Yeah. But it's brutally hard for two reasons, which is why these critiques always operate at two levels. And one is at the level of political economy and the other is at the spiritual level. Mm -hmm. And it's brutally hard not only because of uh, the income required to – uh, have reasonable housing and to provide for your kids. It's also hard because people uh, ha- are finding it harder to make uh, emotional connections with one another in, in a way that has actually disparate impact. Uh, like the, the impact at the class level is, is disparate. So upper middle class people tend to still be marrying, they're having kids, but later they might want to have uh, more kids, but family formation for the upper middle class has not, uh, my understanding, has not been that radically no. uh, disrupted. Where it has been disrupted is among the dwindling lower middle class, among the working class, where you have these cultural, social phenomena occurring at the same time. And uh, some of this has to do with, you know, uh, the ascendance of women in the workplace and the relative decline of. Uh, men in, in terms of their earning in uh, in some of the places that are hardest hit, but it also has to do with like you know the kind of infra- social infrastructure that brings people together. And social infrastructure is a very technocratic way of putting it. But like people, look, we all know what I'm talking about. 
people in many places are finding it harder to connect with one another outside of the old social bonds that used to right yeah i mean one of the one of the books that's come out recently on the right timothy carney mm-hmm. of the washington examiner put out this book alienated america and he, he kind of looks at you know his kind of book you know it's sort of like one of these books like uh, Charles Murray's book Coming Apart or whatever where he's trying to compare – and essentially he's trying to compare different ideas about what explains Trump's rise or what explains his appeal and, OK, is it declining incomes? Is it this or that? And he kind of comes to the idea that it's declining civic society, mm-hmm. right? That like uh, you know, if you go to places – and it's not just conservative values, the, his view – because he says if you go to these upwardly mobile liberal communities in Washington, D.C. or Bethesda, there's tons of civil society. There's tons of engagement of parents with the schools. There's tons of social activity groups that form people and you know maybe not a lot of church. Then you go to Utsburg in Wisconsin and there's tons of church like these Dutch reformed churches – and there's tons of community effort and there's all these positive outcomes in marriage and well-being, income earning, et cetera. But if you go to – you know, he goes to like the Dakotas to test the thesis, OK, what if you take this kind of barren social landscape and you just throw a lot of income at it, mm-hmm. you know, like with this energy boom? And then he looks at the outcomes there and they're pretty terrible. There's more money sloshing around but not much better – outcomes as far as divorce, mm-hmm. child rearing, etc. It's a really inter- it's a really interesting book, but it it definitely gets to that idea of like these social things that form us. Right. And 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 in some places increasingly don't form us. I think it's important to to zero in on that in part because when you are looking at the kind of nature of the political realignment that's occurring on both the right and the left, there are all these obvious convergences around the critique of neoliberalism, around the critique of pure market forces as the solution to every problem, around even the uh, – the uh, how would you put it? The, the lack of social welfare provision for the poor and the neediest people. There are very obvious ways in which – Right-wing nationalists, let's call them as a group as opposed to like, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, neoconservatives as another formation. Right-wing people are interested in the nation take this idea. This It's communitarianism is a simple phrase for it. And there's mm-hmm. obviously a convergence between that and certain strains of uh, left-wing, left-wing critique of neoliberalism, etc. But when you get to the underlying causes and when you get to what the solutions need to be, that's where you approach these differences that I believe are both irreconcilable finally, but also clarifying because you have to understand the ways in which they're irreconcilable to approach the decisions that need to be made. Yeah. And one of the interesting things, right, is uh, I think one of the questions that these manifestos bring up or that this political moment brings up is – are we all pretty dissatisfied with the answers that are being proposed, right, on both the left, the newer left and the newer right? Because I, I feel I, I am still dissatisfied that I, I don't I – don't nece- at least on a policy level, I, I'm not totally convinced. Like that Timothy Carney book, 
at the end, you know, most political books have this thing where, the, the, you know, for 12 chapters, they outline a problem, diagnose it beautifully. And then the 13th chapter is a completely <laughs> right, right. lame right. thing about, like, how to solve the problem. Right. Yeah. Like, Francis Fukuyama's recent book, Identity, is exactly that, where it's like, <laughs> the, okay, this I'm actually with this, this is kind of interesting at least i'm being carried by this thought and then i get to the last chapter and it's like oh my god this this went off the rails and tim's last chapter i mean i mean i know this is off a little bit off the the text of these uh you know basically it's just like i don't know if you can volunteer more start a start a literally like start a t-ball team for your kids like he, he the the problem seems so enormous Right, because throwing throwing money at it, you know, throwing income at you know men who have lower income, that even that feels like in some ways a pretty big lift politically, mm-hmm. and yet he's he's looking at at least this initial evidence uh, and saying I'm not sure that's going to even begin to address the problem. So there's there's a really interesting essay by Jeanne Marie who we've talked about in the podcast before, is a survivor of Auschwitz. Um, uh, <laughs> Austrian, then fled to Holland, then was ultimately uh, captured, uh, tortured by the Gestapo, sent to Auschwitz. <clears throat> and he has an essay called How Much Home Does a Person Need, right? Um, and it is about um, the experience of having home ripped from you. And not just like you go into exile, but the the people that you grew up with and the culture around you um, – is closed to you because they're trying to kill you. And there's a sort of really interesting moment where he's, you know, he's with this little resistance cell and they have their, you know, their pamphlets, all this stuff that could get them thrown and and tortured in a prison and tortured. And this like sleepy SS man like comes up and like barges in on them just to tell them to like quiet it down. And, you know, this is this moment where if he just kind of looked around and realized what was happening, he could arrest them all. But what happened to Marie in that moment is the SS man was yelling at them in the dialect that he knew growing up. And he felt this sort of like crazy desire to respond to him, to see him as a, you know, potential friend, even though this is, you know, this is a guy set out to hunt him down and, 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 and kill him. Um, and he ultimately decides that sort of, you know, <laughs> um, if you have that home taken from you, it's it's sort of a loss of self uh, that he is sort of d- deals with. And he, and there's a really interesting passage where he talks about how money is an ersatz home that doesn't quite work. Uh, and he says, modern man, he talks about sort of the, you know, this kind of jet setting and we can travel all around and have all these connections. He says, modern man exchanges his home for the world. What a brilliant transaction. For many a person who trades what yesterday meant home for a second-rate cosmopolitanism gives up the sparrow in the hand for the colibri in the bush. Superficial knowledge of the world and languages gained through tourism and business trips is no compensation for home. The barter proves to be a dubious one. Um, and then he talks about sort of the steady accumulation of technological scientific progress, how the objects of daily use, which today we still imbue with emotion, tomorrow will be fully fung- fungible. Already American city planners are thinking of turning the house into a consumable commodity in the future. In such a world, how would one still be able to form the concept of home at all? The cities, highway service stations, the furniture, the electric household appliances, the plates and the spoons will be the same everywhere. It is conceivable that the language of the future world will 
also be the purely functional means of communication that for the natural scientist is already uh, it is it already is today. What year is that written? This is in the 60s. That's in the 60s. Yeah, yeah. I mean what, part of what's so interesting about that is that it's in a moment mm-hmm. when the left which I think Amory is broadly a part of yeah uh but where conceivably that passage could have come from either the left or the right Mm, yeah um Mm -hmm. whereas now uh one of the problems with the the left now for me is this phony materialism that they don't actually like the idea that the only problem is a lack of money or that that the only problem with everything can be explained by late capitalism um strikes me as not only wrong, manifestly wrong, um, but also absurdly disingenuous. I don't believe that the people saying this really believe it. We'll get into what's wrong with the right in due time, but but Amory's complaint. I, so I, I, I would you know, I, I would disagree with you there, right? So so if you look at somebody like uh like the Brunigs, right? Mm-hmm. Elizabeth Brunig and um uh Matt Brunig, right? Um you know, just came out with a Mepper and just came out with a policy paper, the Family Fund Pack, which is sort of a set of sort of welfare provisions for families. And and the whole purpose of it is like, look at the timeline of somebody's life. You know, if you think of the American worker and this kind of purely instrumental earning potential way, right? Like during your prime childbearing years, that's when you're sort of at a low ebb in your sort of lifetime income. Um you you know people make more later in life, uh, and so one of the things that happens is having children is the primary thing that can throw uh, a young mother into severe financial distress. Um, there's a, a shocking number of people who you know sort of are poor in part. You can actually tie it to the fact that. They had children and the children are growing up in poverty just because of the financial strain that that puts on. And so the entire sort of rationale behind this sort of welfare project that you're putting together, uh, you know, from a sort of sort of socialist left perspective is not, oh, we just solve things with money. It's to enable people to have – make the kind of choices yeah, and Phil, form the people families. you're describing are outliers. I mean as far as I understand, Brunig is a pro-life Catholic. I don't think she's at mm-hmm. all representative of the left. Good for them for acknowledging that families are important, which I don't think should be a, a controversial proposition. But I don't think you would find a great willingness on the left, broadly speaking, particularly on the DSA left, to just frankly acknowledge something as obvious as that. That a family is not merely uh, symptomatic of material accumulation. Like a family is not only good because a family points to the fact that you have enough wealth and assets to be able to support a family. A family is a good in and of itself, which is not to say that all families are good. Bad families are all bad in their well, own way. How, as how, we know. How, serious, how seriously do people on the left, I honestly don't know, take the, these more radical critiques of the family that like sometimes conservatives will dwell on that the idea of like, well, the family is a patriarchal institution. It's really this thing that you think of as like an ideal home is actually a theater of oppression and conformist gender roles and, and, um, and private tyranny. I don't know how seriously – it depends on what you mean by the left. If by the left you mean democratic voters, I don't think they take it seriously at all. I don't think any of them have ever encountered it in any real way. But if by the – well, 
It, but if by the left you mean people in influential positions, not only within the media but in policy circles, how seriously do they take this? You know, a shade less radical than what you're describing, I think, is a pretty uh, commonplace view. Um, <laughs> I, I, well, you don't I think so? I would no, disagree I think with that. I, th- I would disagree. With I mean, think uh, my my dim impression is it's more like double minded. It's like at times that critique will seem useful. Maybe in individual situations, but then most people actually. I'll tell you no, what, I would say that some people on the left, what they would want would be, um, sort of more burden sharing within the household. Um, a situation where you know, if a mother is working, she's not also doing all of the housework. I mean, I don't think that this is. Uh, I don't think that there's. I don't. I've never. I don't think met really anybody on the left who would say that the family as an institution is necessarily uh, – I, I have you know. some people to introduce you to. But what oh, you no, know, but, but, now. But, but mostly like it would be the family, like all kind of institutions and structures, is going to be something where the the nature of it is always changing and where there's sort of places for reform in the ways that people interact with each other. Um, and that those need to be renegotiated and that, you know, sort of the older form of the family had a lot that was wrong with it. Um, that doesn't mean that the institution gets entirely thrown out. I think that's 40 years out of date. Marriage is an institution that has curtailed women's freedom for centuries. But instead of rejecting the patriarchal and outdated tradition, some feminists have decided to reclaim it. We may have progressed since the Industrial Revolution, where Mary Wollstonecraft described marriage as little more than a state of legal prostitution. But let's not kid ourselves. Even today, marriage is not about equality. It's about perpetuating male privilege. So to to come back to the sort of essential point of of, um, what is the good that these new... What is the vision of the good that these new political formations are trying to address on the left and the right. And Phil, your point is that there is actually, there is a consensus that the family, for instance, is good. And you're citing the Bruneggs as mm-hmm. an instance of people who are leftists, whose materialist analysis is oriented towards, in some sense, uh, the family as a right. social unit. And, you and, want to and who actually have a, have a plan that's like, you know, there's a basic sort of life cycle and yeah. wealth accumulation issue that within a capitalist economy is making it brutally hard for people to form families. And so, you know, the only way right. to fix that is you can't fix that through individual initiative right. because no, you're never going to get out of that. So you need the state to come in and sort of basically redistribute sort of people's later earnings right. towards people well, with families. What's interesting and, is it's and, a reversal, though, yeah. of the initial like building out of the American welfare state was was transferring from the young and in root yeah. health and working to the old and retire. Right. And and it's interesting to see this this sense of well we need some kind of dramatic reversal. In fact, retirees are We do need a dramatic yeah. reversal. That's a correct analysis. I oh, mean, no, but but it, <laughs> there's there's an interesting novel by uh, Daniel Torday that came out called Boomer. Yeah, yeah. It's about no, like a terrorist Torday. movement against baby boomers just trying to get them to retire so the oh, jobs will open oh, up. Oh, no, I, I mean, yeah. I could do this anti-baby boomer stuff all day. <laughs> but it is – so there are a couple things, right? There's – of course, there was a fertility mm-hmm. – a huge fertility change technologically mm-hmm. in the middle of this, right? 
uh, which to dramatically change the ratio of workers. But I wonder if it's also that the civil society breakdown that we described, especially at the lower level, is that was not only the safety net but also this crucible of character formation for yep. young people that insulated them from the early shocks that we're talking about now yep. that, that Brunig is trying to address with the family fun pack and that um, – you know, in the the era of the Great Depression, you could have eighteen year old, twenty two year old men get through that period, um, relying on civil society and other things to continually push them back toward the labor market. Like you have to be useful at some point. Whereas now, at in that that crucial stage of t- say twenty five to thirty five, you're loaded with student debt. You haven't found a footing in the labor market as quickly. I mean, you can show this, that uh, millennials didn't find their their footing in the labor market as quickly Mm -hmm. as Gen Xers or baby boomers. And now the, 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 you know, maybe the instinct expressed through the market is, okay, maybe you're just a deadweight loss and we're just writing off your chances forever now. And that is part of, that has been part of sort of Republican political rhetoric, right? I mean, that was the forty-seven percent, the makers and the takers. Right there was that, there was that instinct in there, yeah, of just to write off. A but huge the sense swap. of a national obligation, right? The sense of the the state, mm-hmm. the state as the expression of the nation, is responsible to uh, people, communities um, in this way, right? First of all, I, I broadly agree with. I would like to see um, more money flowing to families of, let's say, peak child rearing mm-hmm. age. The the objection I have is to the idea that the broad consensus on the left holds that the family is a good in and of itself. I, I don't think that's true, even if on some level the people who would object to it still behave as if it's true. And the reason why I bring this up is because I think it are, it articulates one of the real essential divisions. Now, the, I'm not saying what the Brunigs in particular think, but I, I do know that you know if you were to say, for instance, that uh, families are intact, families are important markers of academic success, right, or, or are important to uh, to like the welfare uh, uh, of children growing up, that there would be, I think, significant pushback on the grounds that you're stigmatizing single mothers on the grounds also that uh, the family should not be what's essential, that what should be essential is the kind of material support, the curriculum at the school, that these are the things that are really important, that the focus on the family is a kind of anachronistic, a reactionary uh, evasion. Right now, this is not to say that the people who are pushing this line don't want to have intact families themselves, but this is the rhetoric that gets promoted. It's important to point this out because what we're getting at with these manifestos in part is what should the economic power and the policies of the state be oriented towards? Right. And one of the things saying the home Now, it could be a patriarchal version of the home, right? But that depends. I think the kind of renegotiation of household burdens that you're describing is a conversation that probably happened decades ago and that that's no longer what forms the basis 
of the kind of objection to the family as a, a patriarchal unit. I, I think that we've moved beyond that. Um, so all of which is to say, right, that you have in this dead consensus, and we should move on to McCarthy in a second because we've been on this one well, for a long I, time. I have a Okay. But in this dead consensus, part of what they're saying is we're privileging the citizen of the nation and we're also privileging through the power of the state, you know, these ends. The family is an end in and of itself. It's not a means to something else. Yeah. That's Fa- what I take Family, faith, it. and local community. Right. And it's also a view, a, a view though, that the health of the family will then conduce back towards the health of the nation, right? That yeah. like – uh, more intact homes, more uh, intact communities and, and civic institutions will produce better citizens and ultimately like a better nation in right. regards. So it's a, a, a almost environmental view uh, of those things. I can I can I venture one provocation? Go for it. Right about this this idea of the centrality of home. So we've been talking about this in terms of political history, political developments, and political economy. What if one of the reasons this theme is suddenly so resonant on the right is actually the rise of electronic media? So there's this this book from the 80s. I think the sociologist had this book and it just was coming to my mind. It's called by Joshua Myrowitz called No Sense of Place. And this is long before smartphones. But just he talks about the the, the sense of placelessness that comes from – the advent of electronic media even or even telephones. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if this uh, – one of the reasons intellectuals, why myself, Sorab, Matthew Schmitz, Daniel McCarthy and others have this isn't just that, OK, we notice an elite class that's jet-setting around the world, but also that we experience in our own lives when we stare into our phones a kind of plastic or substitute – uh, simulation of community through social media mm-hmm. that is obviously unsatisfying. And so suddenly we have this feel this urgency. Obviously, like this idea of home is central to human experience. Like all of the great, you know, big novels, all the great religious traditions have this idea of this like uh, Eden like. Uh, youth or primordial existence, and I think many of us feel this too. That this, uh, it's into the warp and woof of our day. You know, yeah. you wake up, you have your like little morning ritual of coffee or whatever, and then you go out and venture into the world. And then at the end of the day, you come home. In the Bible, you so go you're from a haven in a heartless world. You go from you know Eden, and then you venture out into this world. You just defeat the dragon at the end of the Book of Revelation, and then you have a restored heaven and earth, a home. And so it's just so deep in us, and I wonder if this rise of electronic media itself has also like uh, is also in a, almost in a subliminal way, or maybe in a very real way, um, uh, causing our intellectuals, right and left, to suddenly look back at at this idea of home, or suddenly crave it, because we we ourselves feel a lack of sense of place that, mm-hmm. in a sense, even wherever we are, the whole world can kind of reach you, into you. The, the sense of shelter of the home somehow disappeared, and the sense of placeness around the home. Well, it plays is, off of that sort of need for community, disorder. and that need to reach out, and that need to be seen, and to have like uh, a group of peers, but in a very, very thin way that is sort of 
at once like deeply compelling to go on Twitter and feel like you, know, you go on Twitter and it's 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 strange. Like you'll see people talking about something and feel like, well, I I need to make a statement about this, right? Um, in a way that you would if you were at a dinner party having a conversation, and yet you're not talking to a group of people who, when you talk to them, are going to respond to you in the moment, and you're going to be able to sort of hash things out. As persons. Everything is done in a thin way with context stripped, and people are only responding to each other on their time when they desire to and taking things yeah. in the way that they want. And so it sort of – it, it um, plays on all of those sort of relatively – all those fairly deep human needs, but in a way that is sort of stoking them, but at the same time – leaving them unsatisfied. So I have to point out that you're suggesting that this uh, refocus on the home, the family, is in some ways a response to the dissipation of community and a sense of maybe rootlessness that occurs in a digital media environment. Right. I mean, listen, I, I – but, but hold on. But Christopher Lash's point in Haven in a Heartless World is that the, the home originates – as a response to the loss of community in an industrial environment, which is not to say that he's correct, but that these arguments reinvent themselves. Mm. These, there's a cycle here. Lash's point was that the home as a sanctuary is a widely misread book or probably widely uh, mischaracterized by people who haven't read it. But the, the argument in that book is actually that the, the home as a sanctuary responds to the heartlessness of the world, not that the home is, you know, the, the natural, inviolable sanctuary. Well, um, so, but this would actually get to – and we'll talk about this in your book later. But one of the things for me having kids um, was this sudden sense of how bizarre the modern home is. Like you come home with a baby and there's nothing that feels more strange and un unnatural than coming home with a baby and not having like a huge network of family around you, right? Like, you know, we're we're humans, we're herd animals. Like you're supposed to come home. I completely felt that. I live two blocks from my parents mm -hmm. and five blocks from my brother and sister-in-law and nieces, and I still felt that. Yeah. And I still felt strange walking into what was at the time an empty apartment with mm -hmm. my new daughter. And even though I knew my family was there, there was a, a disorienting. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we had the same experience in my own life. Yeah. When my first daughter came home, my mother-in-law was with us for a few hours and then my mother-in-law left and my wife just cried. Yeah. And like, and then I cried because it, we felt so inadequate to the need. Although, you know, I have to say now I've had three children and the level of anxiety about our ability to take care of this child, the two of us, the third child, the two of us, is way, way lower. Yeah. Like, well, the, the, way lower. The anxiety, but still, you know, one of the nice things about having kids is just the way that it brings you closer to, to your family. And we live with my mother-in-law, and that was amazing. You know, it's funny. People without kids be like, oh, it's like living with your mother-in-law. I was like, it's the greatest thing in the world, right? <laughs> Especially when you have kids. And my parents came and moved in for a little bit. And then my wife's grandparents came up from Columbia to to stay with us for a couple months. It was incredible. And it was incredible not just because we had somebody helping out, but because you were living with people that you loved and yeah. experiencing that 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 
kind of broader sense of community, which is what's the line your father says to you? Uh, you you'll go back to your roots. You'll yeah, be- yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, that was true. But you know what was interesting was I, you know, I had this. We'll we'll get to this later. I had this experience of growing up an only child with a single mother, yeah. and we lived with her parents. They died in my childhood, and then my wife grew up in a home with three siblings um, and two parents in the home. And I kept noticing while we were dating and before we were married that her siblings were like this superpower that I didn't have. Yeah. That in a sense, like cars could be borrowed and exchanged. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, okay, so your car is in the shop. Well, I'm not using mine today. You just use it. And like, how much and, – and not only uh, was this like a social power, but it was kind of like an economic superpower yeah. in in a sense. So the, there's one thing I want to read from the McCarthy. I, w- I will say the, a new conservative – not a new conservative agenda. The, um, the first things against the dead consensus. I mean it seemed like a bunch of platitudes, some of which I – you know, well, that's the more. least interesting one, though. It's we, the least interesting. We, we, spend, we spend the most time on it, but the um, and it also just one of the things with all of these, like you know, the reason I mentioned the Brunig's family fun pack is right. All of these are very concerned with the dissolution of these kind of bonds at the hands of capitalism. I mean, there's like a way in which it's resonant with like the Communist Manifesto. But um, what I was constantly looking for was like, what is something material that we can do? Well, the McCarthy is very material. Right, so I'll get to this. Um, one, so cultural, philosophical, and religious assumptions suffuse public life. This is from the McCarthy. And in that sense, politics is indeed downstream from culture. Uh, one can even go further and say that culture broadly understood is the riverbed of politics, setting the course along which it flows. But that course is checked and channeled by willful human activity, by building dams and canals, as it were. How this is done largely – turns largely on economic questions, or rather questions of what used to be called political economy. Different kinds of political economy not only produce different dispensations of wealth and power, but also profoundly shape family life, individual character, and civic and the civic landscape. A political program, therefore, has to be an economic program, not just in the superficial sense of dealing with subjects like taxes and regulation, but in the deeper sense of relating the nation's economic way of life to its cultural fabric and the very conditions of its existence. So against the dead consensus lays out this broad idea that, you know, we need to move away from this free market economy that privileges individuals over community. And McCarthy is saying very directly, um, we need to structure the political economy in such a way that it privileges our citizens over the citizens of other countries and also so that it privileges those social units within our citizenry that we think conduce to the welfare of the nation. Right. And he has some very specific uh, things that he's talking about. One is, you know, that the, that the, the sense, there's a good sort of capsule history in the McCarthy. Basically what he lays out is that the left, right sort of neoliberal, neoconservative consensus on individual rights and the primacy of the free markets was a response to the cold war. And it made sense in that context. But when the cold war ended, to continue to see China yeah. as a uh, place that, that that was a market mm-hmm. and that could deliver cheap consumer goods to Americans no longer made sense because China became a kind of – was extracting right. wealth from America insofar as it was taking well, so, jobs so he, away. He points out that we traditionally had a kind of economic nationalism, right? Like, like, Ham- like Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton's sort of dispute with like – 
Adam Smith. Like if you look at history, these other nations grew up their industries with tariffs, with protective tariffs that would allow right. – you know, and if we do this – uh, you know, we will be able to become an industrial powerhouse, but we need to protect our nascent industries. And so that's what America did for basically the entirety of the 19th century, right? Um, and then McCarthy sort of argues that, like, we switched out of that to win the Cold War, which I, I don't actually think is what happened, right? Like, we were an economic powerhouse, and so a broad, like, we switched to a more sort of free trade, very active sort of participation in the broader um, sort of intergovernmental and intereconomic sort of structures, we set up that infrastructure not just to win the Cold War, but because as the world's economic powerhouse, it was in our interest at that point, right? Um, and so he sort of talks about this kind of economic nationalism as, and I think where's the quote, as this sort of like, you know, we build up um, this sort of, uh, uh, <laughs> like we're building up a kind of, um, yeah. So successful was the economic nationalism pursued by America in the 20th century that we could afford to deviate from it during the Cold War for the sake of strengthening allies like West Germany, Japan, and South Korea. Um, uh, and that, you know, sort of Trump is going to return us to the policy orientation that once really did make America great in the GOP grand, which is sort of, I think, a strange way of looking at it, as if we sort of, through economic nationalism, were building up kind of like greatness coin that we just then expended during the, civil, uh, the Cold War. Rather than, you know, we instituted a set of um, policies that sort of redounded to our benefit. But they, but whose benefit? <laughs> what, what do you mean by it? the key question here is who's we? Mm -hmm. You know, it redounded to the benefit of some people, and it certainly redounded to the benefit of the sort of uh, key financial yeah. and corporate nodes in the globalized economy. It didn't well, redound to the benefit well, of the people. And there's still a question. There's still a question, right? And it's still debated on the right. Like I heard um, – I think his name is uh, Sternberg who just wrote a book on millennials and boomers. Mm -hmm. He's a Wall Street Journal editor and you know, he takes an argument that the post-war economy was strong. The post-war American economy was so strong and that strong economy produced as a result strong unions yeah. and strong – regulation and all these other things and that the, and that the mistake of the boomers was to conf and of and progressives is to confuse those things that were products of this economy as inputs into it that like oh it was strong unions that made the economy uh well, broadly shared and whatever but i mean mccarthy lists unions and this is one of the things that, that was interesting as one of the sort of important factors in being able to there's been a strange new respect for unions on the right, right among intellectuals. I see. I don't find this. I think it's too much is made of the strangeness of it. You know, in a way. Like, yeah, yeah. No, there's. This is a very small group of right. people. But but so this is one of the things. So you can talk about the 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 on the right. You can talk about the you know, the importance of the family and sort of economic conditions that are then going to redound to the benefit of sort of a life outside of work and outside of maximizing potential. But I don't see how you do that without without strong support for things like labor unions that could fight for, you know, uh, child, you know, parental leave policies but, and, okay. and the sorts of things that would actually enable people. But, to, this is question, a good thing to but what's up. the function of the union? Mm -hmm. Is the function of the union to get health care and other benefits out of the company or to get that out of the federal government? Because one, one critique you can mm -hmm. make of the American economy, right, of the 70s and why – 
we lost, you know, dominance in automotive or whatever mm-hmm. is that Germany and Japan did, you know, their major car companies were not trying to be healthcare providers and administrators of pensions. That in fact, they were allowed to be a mm-hmm. capitalist enterprise that focuses on their specialization, making cars that people want to buy. And so, as you transfer right, but so, but responsibility away from the company to provide these things or the labor market to provide these things, what then is the role of the union? Is it just to increase wages or or what? Because well, so historically, I mean, the unions have done like wages, but also living conditions, uh, Work workers' rights, work, yeah, working working conditions, sort of – Those have been transferred to, to be regulations now on the whole economy so, some rather of than been, like company Some of it's been transferred. I mean it, some to, of it. But, but to leave aside the question of what do unions do for a second, to come back to the fundamental question of why do you see a conservatism that is now embracing unions, for one thing – there is a older conservative tradition, or perhaps it'd be better to call it a right-wing tradition, that doesn't view capitalism as an unalloyed good, right? right? And so the return to that mm-hmm. is not some radical new innovation. It's a return. It's a return to an earlier orientation, to one that was more prominent in the pre-war years, and, and to one that... I think has roots in a conservatism that responds to the kind of social dislocation that you were describing with digital media. Yeah. And and that is not just McCarthy. Right? This is Tucker Carlson is mm-hmm. who's one of the most popular figures in the country is a kind of in his self-fashioning a nationalist of not such a tremendously different variety than what McCarthy is right. articulating, though the inflection is different. Well, and as somebody who's, you know, sort of broadly supportive of workers' rights as he sees it. Well, basically, right, so yeah, there's this group of people who basically say, let's let's make a bigger break from the fusionism conservatism of Buckley where conservatives are yoked to libertarians and further yoked to the idea that we are conserving a liberal order, i.e. we're conserving a constitutional order described in the Constitution, right. the U.S. Constitution, you know, that in fact are, you know, uh, you, you might say it's a conservative realist approach that actually we have a different constitution in fact, an unwritten one. Um, and so we have to uh, – we, we have to realize we're living in 2019 and not in 1789. Yeah. Um I, you know, that that actually does split my own heart and mind a little bit as well. I oh, so uh, well, I I do I do think some tie to the written constitution. I do I do have this. Maybe it's mystical, but this idea that like legitimacy of government is an underrated uh, asset, and that we mess with it at our peril. It's, now, of course, um, right. But but at the same time, my head and, and heart also say like, let's be realists about this and, and realize that like we don't actually that that constitutional republic was severely altered by Jacksonian democracy, the Civil War, and all sorts of other dispensation changing events since then, including two world wars, the Cold War. And, and and partisan conflict and alignment, right? Like, I mean, 
they just did not foresee they they did not foresee party being a stronger motivator than the jealousies of of office in three quote co-equal branches yeah so we have had so far two uh manifestos both from first things the against the dead consensus and the mccarthy and the mccarthy is really this sort of uh championing of i would say a program of economic nationalism right and uh, one thing to say about industrial things is to, to bring back tim Car- tim carney's book he he puts out this theory that in a sense industrial work itself is good character building for strong marriages that mm-hmm. like it literally teaches men to be dependable reliable etc whereas maybe a gig economy is is actually forming men's character to always be ready to break off commitments always be looking for like some slightly better deal uh, I mean, this is I, the I, kind I, of conservative I, stuff that yeah. sounds insane like factory work builds character is not an argument that i'm sympathetic to but i uh, I, 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 I would I, also I'm say that sort of being being in a pr- precarious economic situation is probably less likely to make somebody want to it's no defense of the gig yeah. economy to say that right. um no i th- i think yeah. you're i mean i've has anyone done factory work i've done some fa- i've done factory I have work not. in college um, you know, there's a reason why people want to stop doing it if they if they can. It's hard, it's hard physically. It can be very physically demanding, yeah. d- dangerous work. You know. Um. Uh, so so yeah yeah the, like. <laughs> yeah. But but if 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 your choice is if you, oh, if your view of the world sure. is if your view of the world is however. I got paid a lot more than my peers. And, and I'm sure it was doing dependable it. and there was probably a transparent ladder of sorts that yes. you could climb. Right. I yeah. understand. And, and it, was, it was like in my early 20s, it was much more lucrative than the kind of temp work and the kind of uh, air sats, uh, you know, what would you call it? Like fellowship or – intern type work that a lot of my peers were doing, right? Like I actually had money yeah, for and the, a beer the on the institutional Saturday. nature of it, right? The the fact that the factory is a place and that there's a floor manager and the floor manager works for the guy above him yeah. and there's a plant manager, whatever, all that also means that in theory at least, there's a level of accountability. Yeah. There's a level of you know the guy who's there. Right. Uh, he's not some – you're not working for a – contracting agency who places you with another, you know, as in temp work or gig work. Which is a point McCarthy makes. Is is it a question then for – I mean the McCarthy one raises a question of is it true that we are in uh, global great power competition and then part of that is retaining high-value industries that employ lots of men because – underemployed men become actually a social problem and a social burden on your country in a, in a, in a system. Is that true? I, I think I think it might be. Yeah, I, I think that it's manifestly true that a great number of underemployed men is a, is a bad thing for any number of reasons. And I also think it's true that the orientation of uh, the power of the state and the economy, A, that it needn't be excessively neutral in regards to this sort of social ill and B that it ought to be oriented particularly towards that social ill is a a good and reasonable thing. I think the question becomes how exactly that works, who in the new dispensation is privileged versus disadvantaged, right? Because the, the counter argument quickly to the kind of McCarthy (laughs) 
economic nationalism is that it will stunt economic growth in a way that will, in the long run, lower the you know a rising tide lifts all boats, uh, falling tide sinks all boats. Right. But what I would say is that the rising tide has been so unequal over the past forty years, so uh, so uh, unequally distributed. This is why something like part of what I found appealing about Andrew Yang for all that freaks me out about him is the recognition that something like GDP is no longer a good indicator of economic health. Why is it not a good indicator of economic health? Because the growth in GDP doesn't correlate necessarily to an average person's standard of living, security, Ability to do with their wealth what they would like to yeah, well, so do. Yeah, so one thing we we'll see for sort of the capacity, yeah. right? Like, I mean, if you're counting, that's right. right. If you're counting debt as GDP, right? Like, then a person coming out of college with two hundred fifty thousand dollars of debt has a hard, like a much higher GDP personally right. than yeah. someone with a reliable union job that's starting him at 60 and moving him up to 120 over the next 20 years. You'll also hear, and I, you know, sort of from the more kind of traditional conservative or libertarian wing, I think I heard Jonah Goldberg make this point where it was like, you know, like the average person today has like a cell phone in their pocket that like a millionaire yeah. couldn't have afforded. And then there's the least persuasive argument to me. You know, it's like there are these commodities that you can afford and we get cheaper stuff from China and therefore, you know, you're doing well even though all the, the social indicators – It's the weakest of all arguments. It's a terrible argument. Yeah. And, and I'm seeing it more and more. And in fact, there have been a couple of pieces recently, one in the Wall Street Journal and I think one in Bloomberg, arguing that wage stagnation is not real and that actually if you look at uh, spending power and, and all of these sorts of articles point to, for instance, uh, wage indexes don't reflect the fact that you can buy a laptop now and or mm-hmm. everyone has a smartphone now. Yeah. And look, the Whig version of history always has some truth to it. But mm-hmm. the idea that there hasn't been an appreciable decline in the standard of economic security and sense of – economic prospects among the uh, middle class and lower middle class in this country so manifestly untrue and political reality speaks to the ways yeah the, I mean, the, 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 the like reason that the, you just have to drive around and take a look in some places listen like, we're in new york city life expectancy Go has upstate. been going down among the working class every year since the dawn of the millennium and i guess it's just because they didn't realize how awesome their cell phones were it's insane. Right. Like, I mean, go to the Bronx. I mean, you, you, go upstate. Go to Orange County, right? Like, Orange County, New York is not that far away from where we're, we're sitting right now. And it's astonishing. It's astonishing, like, how slow people were to, to recognize, like, some of the opioid crisis, right? Like, this stuff was battering down the door where I live in Westchester County, which is, like, one of the mm-hmm. counties nationally that's Staten Island was out. an epicenter of this. Yeah, singled out as, like, one of the richest, most secure counties in the country. And it's, like, this stuff is taking up a third of the day of cops and, like, 60% of the day of emergency service workers. Yeah. Like, it's a... We, we got to get on we, to we, we, so we should talk about Pappen. I thought the Pappen was really interesting. I mean, at, at the heart, it's basically it's sort of summarize the, Pappen's argument, if you will, Phil. So that liberalism is a theory of the power of the state, right? And it is, um, it's it, and so you with liberalism you end up with a, a theory of the power of the state without a theory of the common good that conservatism or traditional conservatism and kind of the 
non-economic kind of cultural variant is a theory of the common good without a theory of how state power is going to achieve that, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that kind of structural conditions have shifted to the, the to such an extent that the kind of old guard conservatism is, uh, you know, he has this this thing about like uh, ideologies being like the mirror of princes, uh, and where you know they're talking to an establishment that has moved on because liberalism as is sort of like it has become neoliberalism and actually allied with progressivism where um, a kind of man as a sort of atomized economic instrument with kind of endless choice uh, that fits very well with a kind of sort of social progressivism and, you know, kind of like woke capitalism, all these other things that uh, I don't think he uses that phrase. Uh, and so kind of traditional conservatives are talking to no one. Because I think just to flesh that, finish that off, like what he's saying also is that conservatives began to be self-appointed enforcers, defenders of a small L liberal tradition, meaning mm-hmm. a kind of Lockean yeah. 19th century liberalism, which was about limiting the power of the state, right. preserving individual liberty that no longer existed because liberals had moved on to a aggressive, assertive progressivism. So conservatives were defending a liberalism in which liberals no longer believed and in which they had no power to actually right. – and, and that's he, the, he sort of the general from the – he explicitly references the Frankfurt School, right, as like um, the key features of modern markets and liberal politics uh, were not the price mechanism and political neutrality but the mastery of human behavior and the realization of the consumer society, right? So mm. like the Frankfurt School, like uh, Horkheimer and Dorno, dialectic of enlightenment is like sort of as you move through the stages of enlightenment, these kind of – old kind of cultural mores and sort of um, shackles around the individual – not shackles, but sort of restraints around the individual consciousness sort of fall away. Uh, you're left with uh, an eye which can sort of do anything where everything is reduced to that which is susceptible to formal reason, which means things that are calculable, right? And so it sort of naturally sort of turns the entire world or the worldview into – that which you can apply instrumental rationality yeah, yeah. to. And so you have this eye that's restrained by nothing, can do anything but has no center. And there's sort of like um, – example of this is the Marquis de Sade, right, where um, you, know, you sort of – So what does he suggest though? And let, let, me, let me turn this over to Michael because I think that the key distinction between not just the Papin piece, which mm-hmm. is called – Towards a theory of the state. Party of the state. Towards, towards a party, a party of, the of the state. And uh, the key distinction between the Papin and the McCarthy and against the dead consensus first things, which maybe tracks to a broader distinction in the two strains of new conservative manifesto between people on one side who are oriented towards the nation and people on another side who are oriented towards the state. So in addition to Papin, yeah. I would say like Adrian Vermeule. Yes. Is oriented towards the state. And why is that? Uh, because what Papin is saying is that rather than attempting to re, you know, Papin pays very little attention to trying to reconstitute the nation as such. What Papin is saying is we need to reorient on the power of the state mm-hmm. and, and, and the state, 
he gets into the figure of the prince and in, in order to achieve a common good in order to achieve a common good but that common good is a compact between sovereign and subject not an expression yeah. of <laughs> the romantic demos as the nation right whereas what in mccarthy even more so than in the dead consensus you have a sense of the americans as the people whose interests are being represented by right, the state right right what do you think about that michael Right. Um, Pappins is more foreign to my way of thinking, right? It's more of a classical, you know, a, by relying on the prince as kind of a background theory or, or you know, even really reflects his training also in like classical political philosophy mm -hmm. going to, back to Plato and Aristotle with like a dash of the the Italian realists, you know, the... the, the Some Baudrillard in there too. Actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But... um. My question for Gladden, uh, with whom I I think I have some sort of beef, but I I can't remember what it is. Something on Twitter has started. What's beef? Beef is when you need two cats to go to sleep. Beef is when your moms ain't safe up in the streets. Beef is when I see you, guaranteed to be an I see you. One more time. What's beef? Some sort of insult passed between us, mm -hmm. but um. My question for Pappen is, okay, that's a – you almost captured it in your mistitle, the torta theory of the state. I'm still questioning what he wants to do, what is the common good and how to achieve it, right? He's, he's In a sense, he's like describing a problem that conservatives are unwilling to uh, look at the state and its role in producing a common good. okay. But in, in reality, when conservative parties win power, they take over the, the, the functions of the state. They set policies and enact them presumably to achieve a, a social good. Um, you know, sometimes they – in a way you could ask, is liberalism in a sense a lie? Is it a lie that you tell yourself that you're not actually pursuing social goods when you actually are, mm -hmm. right? That you're, you're creating a neutral playing field on which these goods emerge spontaneously when in fact you're taking office and, and creating that environment. So I, I – OK. I, I'm not sure um, because I already accept the idea that the state has a role to play, that the sovereign plays a role in shaping the culture of the nation or, you know, as Dan McCarthy puts it, the dams and, and yeah. other acts of will that shape the the sediment of the culture. Okay, I, I accept that. I don't need to be convinced of that. Now, you know, the question for American affairs is, okay, now what to do and why and what is the basis of it? So, so he, there's a bit where he talks. Well, yeah. Go for it. So I put this question to them two years ago. Right, so I'm gonna quote from something I wrote in 2017. I never had a beef with Pappen. Beef is not what Jay said. The Nas beef is when the working folks can't find jobs. Yeah, yeah I, I, I had some personal thing. It's it's much more to do with uh, with the the structure of the right. And I'm at National Review, which is a very yeah, yeah, yeah. old school establishmentarian thing. And right, they're at the the intellectually hot. That's start. right. 
Um, you can put your knives away, Michael. We see how sharp they are. Uh, <laughs> no, so. I, no I, I mean, I, I, I mostly welcome their project, at least their provocation. I welcome their project. I uh, wrote this thing after they had this debate with uh, Descent, which is a left-wing magazine, where I left this debate dissatisfied with both sides. And I thought both sides, I think, uh, I'm trying to remember exactly the line I had, but I said, like, the – Right was being coy and the left was pandering. And I thought the right was being coy because they kept talking about the state and the sovereign, but I was, I kept thinking like, on behalf of what? And what I wrote at the time was, if you took Krein, Julius Krein, who has since edited me and who I, I have a good friendly relationship with, and I really, I should say, I think American Affairs has published, like, been tons one of, of the most interesting magazines great stuff. in America over the and last Crying's two really years. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Crying's super interesting. They're publishing – published my friend Angela Nagel in defense of – you know, Angela couldn't get that piece published in any left-wing magazines. I assume Angela is a kind of social democrat. She published a piece in defense of borders in American affairs. At the same time, they're publishing guys like Pierre Manon, who I was introduced yeah, to I through love them. Manon. So Manon – is aligned with this sort of theory of the state, this party of the state stuff. So here's what I said in 2017 after watching these guys debate and wondering what they were all about. Uh, if you took Krein and Papin at their word, you'd have to conclude that the principal concern of America's new nationalist intellectuals is class solidarity and legal citizenship. What does that mean exactly, especially after they come out citing Baudrillard? I was there all night and I'm still not sure. Uh, the real question for me was whether uh, – I actually skipped that. Krein and Papin went out of their way to dissociate themselves not only from ethno and white nationalism but from anything resembling as Schmitz, who's Matthew Schmitz from First Things, puts it, the Sithonic forces of blood and soil. No surprise then that Krein dismissed the alt-right as something marginal and unimportant, which leaves the question which I put to them at the debate, if not race or ethnicity or romantic nationalism, what is the force that will keep the civic and legal procedures undergirding this renewed nationalism from coming apart as happened not very long ago to the last version of civic nationalism in this country? And here – let me propose an answer because I think this is not so far off from what you were just getting at a second ago, which is the question of what is this state oriented towards if you accept. And I think what the state is oriented towards, I gather from some of this and from Vermeule as well, is towards a integralist project. And I mean that seriously. And I, I think uh, integralism in this context refers to a theory – of Catholic political sovereignty that I believe started in the 1910s. I mean, it, I mean, it would claim to have much more ancient roots. Okay, but it was a response well, to the modernists, if, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's a theory. Stop me if I'm getting something wrong here. It's a theory that, not a theory. It's a, a political philosophy that says that there should be no separation between well there's a distinction but not really a separation right that the it's, it's it goes back to the the two swords doctrine of Gelasius, right that like in a sense god all authority and power flows from god the 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 religious realm that governs the church and um has a duty to safeguard the revel 
revelation of God to right. the world is given one power and then the the secular authorities are given the, the other power. Right. And that um, you have to order these things to each other properly. Right. right? And in, in a sense, it's a theory of like church supremacy over – the state in some way, yeah, and but, the, but but that these these do operate in separate realms, right? That that there is, I mean, in the, yeah, in but the, the, the of, in the they two have separate they realms, have, they have different do actually different. They operate in the same realm, obviously the world, but they have different duties. Yeah, but the political duty or the duty of the political apparatus is subordinate to the religious right. duty, and, and and that the the idea that a good state would be the state that restrains evil and conduces most souls to heaven. Okay, so it's not a theocracy right. in the sense of the mechanisms of the state are prescribed within a religious text, right? It's right. not that, but it is theocratic in the sense that the organs of the state are subordinate to Right. Uh, I mean, so it's listen, it's a question though, it's a question yeah. though. does it does that does it prescribe the like does it say theocracy is our prescription or does it say actually theocracy is the is the description is a description of the actual world as it exists that god has handed on these powers and we're deluding ourselves by like and just perverting posing the question is its own sort of answer in a way like that that's the question what i'm saying i don't mean this as a smear i'm not saying they're, they're not- crypto integralists I've exposed them. But what I am saying is, <laughs> you know, what I am saying well, is that- Pappen might be, yeah, yeah. Well, Vermeule's not. Vermeule is, yeah, Vermeule is integralism with it from within, yeah, yeah. Right, but I, I mean, don't think Julius Krein is no, no, totally no. Kr- there. Krein is, I don't even think he's Krein's, Catholic. Krein's on something else entirely. Uh, I, I don't, I'm not sure whether he's Catholic or not, but I don't include him in this category. I think Krein is interested in the state, though. Yes. And that what- you like the the reason I'm harping on this is because when we're talking about the good and and the conservative manifestos, now we have two different kinds of new right, new conservative visions. Because the McCarthy vision, to take him as representative for a second, looks at the nation, right? The McCarthy vision looks at the American people and the nation. Uh, the American nation as being uh, uh, constitu- uh, constitutive of its own – how to put this? That that the job of the state is to protect the interests of the people and to serve the interests of the people and that within that and uh, that in the environment in which that is occurring, there are also – moral and social goods that have to be attended to, right? So it's right. not just that the people are – can decide what is good in the world, but that the people are uh, – And it's also it's, – and it's mutual loyalties, right? That the, the, the people yes. also will be called upon occasionally to fight wars. The people will be called on to right. pay higher taxes to achieve some national end that's for the common good, et But cetera. it's – in that sense, it's really as McCarthy – points out himself when he harkens back to these historical precedents saying like economic nationalism is not such a new thing. It's not quite such a radical departure. It's more of a, hey, we should return to this. Whereas the Papin-Vermule strain, which is, to put it in brief, is don't worry about like the, the what we need to do is recapture the state, meaning the government, 
Meaning, yeah. and once we recapture the government and constitute the sovereign, we being people who broadly agree with us, once we constitute the sovereign, then we direct the sovereign towards the interests of the people, which we understand not through the people's expression of their interests through representative government, but which we divine through sort of the wisdom of the prince informed by uh, religious authority and divine yeah. authority. Is that a fair assessment? I think it's a fair assessment. It's also – but you could also ask, is it a view that the – in the Nash in – the, in the view that you described as the McCarthy view that's more oriented towards the, the nation – the the worth of the state is partly in its expression and loyalty to this people whereas in the in the state driven view the 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 state oriented view the the people in a sense lend their loyalty to build up the strength of the state and the strength of the state the unchallengeability of the state gives it this not only this ability to protect the people and itself, but also a kind of freedom to do what is right, even above the objection of the ruled. Yes, right. Like that. that in a, exactly. In a, in a sense, there's like this kind of um, uh, uh, the the power is good in itself, uh, or, or it almost no, no. looks like power is good in itself because power allows this kind of freedom. Uh, to do what is right. Well, the power is good because the sovereign is good because the sovereign is rightly ordered to borrow a phrase. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and my question with this, and the reason why I think this is important, is because the failure that they're responding to is real. Something new is going to emerge. There right. will be a new political dispensation in America okay. over the next okay. 50 years. I fully believe. Okay. And I think there are a few different ways this could turn. And the question of the relationship between the individual and the state, which Catholics have been very interesting on for a long time, I think, going back to like Jacques Maritain and de Koenig and these questions about personalism. You're welcome, Jake. Thank you, sir. Phil pointed that uh, – Phil turned me on to that stuff and I, <laughs> I'm greatly appreciative. I have found that to be absolutely fascinating and insightful. But we should do some Maritain. We, we really should. But there mm. will be a new political dispensation in America, I believe. Uh, and the question of what will be more important, the, the, the populace, will, will this populist strain win out or will we have a more authoritarian state, which I think is entirely possible, makes these questions, I think, important even if they feel esoteric at times. Okay, and my yeah. great concern with the integralists is what happens – I like on a level – there is a level on which I am sympathetic to the – Failures, to, uh, sympathetic to the critique of liberalism and especially to the kind of hyper-liberalism, hyper-individualism. I'm very sympathetic to the critique. But, but liberalism proposed a way to mediate between conflicting ends, right? Liberalism also meant pluralism. Yeah, yeah. And how are they going to deal with that? Because my right, sense this question is, is – Basically, by reconstituting the sovereign in this way – are you saying like we've got to finish the Thirty Years' War, and uh, and <laughs> like, all disputes you know will mean, be? Like, yeah. we, we've got to get we've got to get a decisive victory here, and all disputes will be resolved by Solomonic judgment or by you know th that there is not a 
procedural approach to the resolution of conflicting ends because in a rightly ordered society there are no conflicting but ends. It, but what's interesting right is that it's it's the the you know people on the right have taken to this idea of criticizing liberalism as mere proceduralism in in itself that it's a, mm-hmm. it's almost a kind of intellectual masturbation it's a, it's an avoiding of the real questions I, my own view is I think that is wrong, and this is where my like small c conservative comes out and says, actually, the what we call liberalism and that was generated, these procedures were were uh, were the procedures that would be produced by conflict between Protestants and Catholics with small Jewish minorities, or it's the or, answer to the Thirty Years' War, right? Well, that, that in a sense, though, that like. This is, in a sense, Christendom's answer. Like it, it was produced by a Christian order. If it had been Islam uh, and Catholicism, if it had been Protestantism and Shintoism, you would have produced a liberalism, a proceduralism for negotiating their ability to share territory and law and live together that would look differently. It would be different procedures you know, in some way. There would be different questions would be up for debate. Yeah. For, the response for to that craft. though is that that where you have these two strains of liberalism, one of which even if the proceduralism begins as an answer, it ends as a kind of – End in itself. An end in itself. And where it ends in an end in itself, there is another more vital strain. And, you know, you get this in a number of people. I point to John Gray often who has this book, The Two Faces of Liberalism, where he proposes that there's one liberalism, which is a Hobbesian liberalism, which is uh, how do we mediate between these conflicts? And there's another, which he identifies as a Millsian liberalism, which tends towards – I love John Gray. Yeah. And Two Faces of Liberalism is like a criminally underrated book. Legutko, Rizgar Legutko has his own sort of theory of liberal democracy as yeah, like, and the demon in democracy. Um, so that you you understand, you can anticipate what the response to what you're articulating. Which, by the way, I I'm on your side of this, and I think that yeah, I think we we ought to be very very cautious where we attempt to. Throw out these systems that have avoided tremendous bloodshed. Well, and that's what's interesting too, right? So I agree with Legutko. Legutko's description of this um, a sort of uh, imagination at the heart of liberal Democrats that mirrors in some way the communist dream of liberation from religion, liberation from constraint, and that this is warping liberal democratic measures. But what's interesting is I – I recognize that as a problem, but I'm I am also of the belief that m- maybe you're right, and this new dispensation is coming. But some people are freaking out that it's already here in Poland and in Hungary. Yeah, and I disagree. I believe Poland and Hungary are still liberal democratic nations that have just taken essentially like. Uh, they just have Christian democratic parties that feel very so foreign. So Orban is wrong when he calls it illiberal democracy? Yes, he's wrong. It's a, it's a, it is a translation error on his part. Maybe someday there will be something called illiberal hmm. democracy. But uh, everyone is voting rights. You can start your own free press there. Hmm. You, you can start these things. I just don't take it seriously when the communist party is out of power and therefore can't fund its own propaganda press and those newspapers close – 
That's not Orban shutting down the media. That's qualitatively different from murdering journalists in Moscow. So I, I, I hold it is, but, so but, I hold, but, this, but when Orban defunds or, or – Stops uh, advertising in papers. And, no. and, and universities. I mean, right. They, but I mean like 12 people yeah. were killed in the Yellow Vest protests in yeah. France. You know, uh, you know uh, Macron has suggested that maybe there needs to be restrictions on where people can protest and other things. Is this a liberal democracy mm. coming out or is this just – Liberalism in defense of liberalism is no virtue, no vice, mm. or something like that. Mm. I, I, I honestly, um, I just, I think the, I think we're we've oversold the radicalism of what's happening in Poland and Hungary, and the, and that they are overselling the radicalism, or at least Orban has been overselling it. So I'm gonna restrain that, myself from responding to this. <laughs> that that's like a whole other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we got to get onto your book. Um, All right. So with uh, much build up, we're getting to the real star of the show, which is Michael's new book, Doherty. Right? Not Doherty. Yeah, Doherty. Doherty. Soft. Michael Brendan Doherty, um, who assuredly is Irish in every one of those names. <laughs> His new book, My Father Left Me Ireland, An American Son's Search for Home, which I think um, its own merits, aside for a moment, which are considerable, it also really evokes in a quite poignant way a lot of the questions that we've been talking about in terms of where loyalties are owed, what the nation comes out of um where uh what what is an end in it of itself versus uh a means to an end and before we get too deep into it michael do you want to just uh tell listeners here a bit about the book sure the book is a series it's written as a series of letters to my father um my father was absent through my boyhood uh, I was raised by a single mother from birth un- until uh, I was a man. My father would make appearances every few years in my life. Um, and I I write about those appearances in these letters. I'm, I'm writing to him about our relationship. And I'm doing so in the context of I'm becoming a father. Uh, you know, if you dated these letters, which they're not dated in the book, but if you dated them, they'd be from 2014 to 2017. As I had my first child and into having my second child. And at that time as well, Ireland was commemorating the centennials of kind of its historic events of a century ago. And what I'm doing is I'm excavating my personal history with my father, Irish history, particularly the Eastern 1916 Rising – uh, as I'm preparing to become a father myself and taking on those duties. And, you know, there's just a lot of reflections on the 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 Irish diaspora world I grew up in as a young child, the kind of end of history 1990s I was formed in as a young man, and then what I'm trying to prepare for my, my kids. Yeah, yeah, and uh... – you know, the the relation between those two things, actually, the end of history, 1990s, individualism, and the Irishness that you arrive at through your father is where I would like to end up 
in this conversation because I, that is the, the arc of the book in a sense is how these things relate to each other. Let me read a, a passage, sure. um, from Michael's book that I think, uh, gets some of this across. I realize it's weird to have the author sit here no, while, no, I, I, while I, I read his. It, no, this has been done a lot so Okay, far. good. <laughs> you can uh, rate me compared to the other people. Because I was raised apart from you, my Irishness has to be self-consciously asserted or it ceases to exist in me. My siblings who grew up in your home could be or do anything and some residue of Irishness would stick to them and to all they do. It is their accent and their memories. It's in the story their American and English employers tell about them. It's the smile of recognition that creeps across their face when their friend rolls his eyes at another dub who helplessly reveals himself as a North Sider or a South Sider. I, on the other hand, am what many Irish people would call a plastic patty, a yank, a tourist who stumbles on a ruined castle and thinks it's the old family homestead then babbles about how good the Guinness is wherever I happen to land in Ireland, when objectively, the Guinness there is a bit shit. <laughs> now, that, that is a, a nice line. But I think uh, the book traces an arc in your own development as a man and as a father and in your relationship with your father and also in your thinking about the nation. And this is sort of at the beginning of that, this is where you start with this kind of ambivalent relationship mm -hmm. as a New York American Irish son of an Irish American mother and an Irish father who you didn't grow up with. You have both a, a un an inescapable connection to this Irishness and also a sense of an, an anxiousness about like how authentic it is. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, yeah, I mean, I was, what my mother did was interesting. I mean, maybe it wasn't inescapable, but my, my mother, when I was young, my mother went through this kind of mania for things Irish. And I, I describe how that affected my nursery. I mean, yes, I had, uh, the Winnie the Pooh stuff, this English children's literature stuff in my room as well. Yes, I had the normal American upbringing. But then also she's taking me to language uh, retreats in rural New York where you're supposed to go with Dalti Nguyelga and learn the Irish language and, and only speak Irish when you're at this week-long retreat so that you can learn and imbibe this this language that's been dying in Ireland for th four centuries. Um, or, and that's not a typical Irish American experience to, to do these things. There'd be a lot of Irish expats and others involved in that. And only a few Irish Americans would have ever heard of this. Um, you know, or in the 1980s, there was also just this social scene that my mother was lightly attached to of Irish immigrants coming over because Ireland's economy was in the tank in the 80s. They were sending a lot of immigrants to America, legal and illegal. Also, Northern Irish people escaping the kind of hell hell on earth that they might be experiencing in the Ardoin or, you know, uh, you know, or the bog side, you know, the, the places you know from the newsreels. So that was part of this uh, – upbringing but what does that actually impart to me 
is was the open question and then you know the the book kind of traces how as i'm growing up in the 1990s ireland goes through this period of disillusion with its nationalist history right during my adolescence which is a natural time for me to be disillusioned with things too uh now it has its own reasons because the troubles were a 30 year terror campaign that held back the whole island of ireland and as those come to an end and prosperity starts coming into Ireland, suddenly all of this nationalist stuff sounds like uh, oppressive, argle-bargle that just – Anachronistic. Ins- yeah, and it also inspired violence and terror uh, and hopelessness. Um, now you're this thriving, the new uh, economic now, power. Yeah, now they're this new, uh, totally renewed nation. Um, and – and, but also at the same time, the Celtic Tiger '90s in, the, in Ireland is belching out all of this stuff at me: River Dance and, and just uh, <laughs> Lord of the Dance. Uh, Angela's Ashes was was kind of you know part of this as well. Or I don't want to be how, too dismissive of the Irish kitsch stuff, though, because no, no, no I, I some kind of, of it's great. Angela's I, Ashes I, is a great book. I, I kind of reconciled to the end, yeah. although you know. His mother did denounce him and his brother from the, like a stage while they're putting on their show, and she's like, "It's all lies," <laughs> you know. Okay, I don't, I didn't read that actually, but the Pogues are Irish kitsch. Let's be honest. Well, yeah, but it, Shane McGowan lived in Ireland for like seven months when he was four years old. Right? No, no, but the, right, but it would have been. And the Pogues are one of the great bands of the twentieth century. I mean, Shane McGowan, yeah, yeah. is one of the great poet singers of the 20th century. The last time I saw you was down at the Greeks. There was whiskey on Sunday and tears in her cheeks. He sang me a song that was pure as the breeze and a road leading up Glenavie. I sat for a while at the crescent dinner where young lovers would meet when the flowers were in bloom. Heard the man coming from the fire at Chiron. And temporary wherever they go Take hand And dry your tears, babe Take my hand Forget your friends, babe There's no pain There's no more sorrow They all gone Gone in Well, and there is something about Irish identity that is always um, a protest, right? That there is something about you know I talk about the book that like the history of Ireland as I knew it as a boy was like one rebellion after another, mm. and these are all conf- were in some some ways conflated in the Irish imagination of all. Irish nationalist rebellions, but in reality, it's like Catholic rebellions against Protestant usurpers or Republican rebellions against monarchy, which were actually led by Protestants, you know. Um, But basically because Ireland has this memory of its Celtic culture and the Gaelic social order that went into utter decline in the 17th century and English starts becoming – the language of education, of social mobility or whatever. Um, and of course, all the power is in – on the Isles is in England. Then to assert an Irish identity is in a sense to to protest this like uh, 
right. historical effacement of Ireland. Yeah. And when you look, there is this permeability that I, of Ireland's history and history in New York and Boston yeah. that you know was a part of my own life where where what is happening in Ireland with the peace process or the ceasefire in the north actually does change social conditions for Irish people in America right um and I don't I don't know if that's really true anymore I mean most of the Irish emigration maybe it's true for Sydney Australia yeah. where there's there was a huge wave in the last downturn for Ireland in 2008 uh you know right Basically, it's really hard to get American visas, or you have to do so, or you just come here illegally. Um, so yeah, the maybe that story is ending. No, but a I bit. knew Irish immigrants when I was a kid, uh, mostly who settled in the Bronx, and I feel like I really don't see that at all anymore. No, no, no. you know. But that was not an uncommon not thing a, when no, I was growing up. You know, there, there, thinking about this sort of like, you know, this sort of cultural relationship to Ireland and like kind of this sort of nervousness about cultural authenticity, right? That Mm -hmm. sort of – and there's a bit from uh, Henry Louis Gates Jr., right, where you sort of – any human being sufficiently curious and motivated can fully possess another culture no matter how alien uh, it may appear to be, right? Um, And, you know, this is one kind of – sort of notion of like we're all universal rational cre- creatures we can enter into another another culture you mentioned that the you know singer of the pogues is that's a sort of pretty tenuous claim on on ireland um and i'm also thinking about like uh, but his tenuousness i mean it was also a beautiful poetic relationship but largely one that he had to right. create in London. Well, the, the, yeah, conjure in London. There's, there's a bit from Joan Didion's White Album where she says, certain places seem to exist because someone has written about them. A place belongs forever to whoever claims it hardest, remembers it most obsessively, wrenches it from itself, shapes it, renders it, loves it so radically that he remakes it in his image. Hmm. And there's that notion, right? That's beautiful. And that... Yeah, Joan Dish is pretty good. But also one of the things in your book is it, it's not entirely free-floating, right? And when you're talking about your father, even acknowledging going through all the distance that you have and the ways in which a lot of the things that you went to felt sort of false in some ways or not entirely natural that you didn't you know you weren't submerged in the idiom of right. growing up in, in Ireland which is this kind of these sort of subtle this kind of subtle etiquette of being in a culture and growing up and learning uh not just the language right but the nonverbal language of being in a culture there's also there's this moment where you're with your your father and you talk about your relation to him as a primordial and unalterable fact and that there is, you know, as much as our purely disembodied rational self might want to insist on our own pure agency and we can fully possess another culture, there's another – there's an element in your book that seems to be saying, but who we are and where we're from and our blood ties matter and we can't get around that. Yeah, I mean uh, someone said it's like uh, there's a scene in the book where the blood makes noise even when you don't want to hear it. Mm-hmm. And that you know that there were 
uh, and th- this bothered me too. That th- that in my own experience as an adolescent and as a young man, I I think what people connect with about the book is that I am honest in saying that at one point this more disembodied, free floating, uh, self creating vision of the individual appealed to me precisely because I wanted to escape this painful wound with my father, right? That in some way I wanted him to be just a man and that someone I could almost like put it over on him, how much I'm over him, how much Mm -hmm. he doesn't affect me. Um, And yet it's in these moments when people recognize inescapably like that my facial gestures, my hand gestures are mirror images of him, even though having not grown up with him at all, I would not have learned that by imitation. That there are things that – our accents are completely different. Um, but we have this physical language uh, that is extremely similar. We have personalities that are similar. We have um, interests that are similar in in a weird way that you know he would be uniquely kind of – more interested in politics and in his family history and in his heritage in, in a different, totally different way than I am, mm-hmm. but in a way that it marks him against his household in a way that marks me against my household. So there, there are these eerie, eerie things that I could not escape. I, people just looked at us and were like, wow, look, look at them. Look at the way they, they command a table with storytelling or – Whatever it's obviously this man is your father. Obviously, you are this person's son. Even if socially those roles were never enacted the normal way. And if you're obviously this man's son, then you are not purely an act of self-creation. Exactly. And you have a phrase that you use, which is very redolent of the times: curatorial approach that you had. Yeah. Right? yeah. And I think that this is really something that people. How old are you? I am God. How old? I was born in '82, so I'm I'm gonna be I'm okay. 37. You're 37. I'm 38, so we're roughly the same age. Phil is uh, a young whippersnapper, but still in the ballpark. 35. But people in our age group, I think, look at this idea of the curatorial approach to life is like deeply, deeply a part of the experience of sort of having come of age at that time. And so this is one of the things reading this book. Right, I, I grew up with a mother and a father. I mean, I think it's, it's still when you listen to like Sam Harris talking about like finding ever better states of consciousness. Yeah, right? absolutely. It's like this is what human life is: is sort of curating a series of that's the highest level states of consciousness that can get better. Yeah, but the worse. question is, why? If I had look, when you talk about you look like your father, whether you want to or not, which you have a history that is not yours to decide, right? right? You as a person have a history that is not yours to decide, that defines you to some extent, and that if you choose to define yourself against is nevertheless the basis for your right, exactly. counter-definition. Right, yeah. And I said that there's a way in which like when we say this curatorial approach to life, is I tried to describe, and what's interesting is this is the part of the book that I get so many comments on from people under 40 read this book and are like, you described exactly this kind of subliminal worldview I was given or th- this idea that, okay, you define yourself. You can um, 
you know, you def- you are responsible for creating your idea of yourself. You can uh, do what you love, and you can love whatever you like. And and but by doing this, and by by in a sense, ab- you know, I said like in a way that the adult world that we confronted as children was kind of terrified of telling us what to do. Right, they were terrified of being tyrants, yes. yeah. and so this even idea like is, the friendly church and yeah, and so this idea was sort of like it created this weightlessness to our decisions. So like rejecting what they were giving us was almost like, uh, you know, had no weight. Didn't even have no, the dignity of an act of rebellion. We yeah, had in a sense, although yeah. in a weird way, the book is itself a kind of act of rebellion against. You know, on, on that m- meta level, right? Like, right. Well, to go back to a more traditional conception would be. <laughs> yeah. We had the weightless, withering sense of flitting about unmoored between meaningless freedoms. Right. I once heard somebody say, um, "Oh, wow, that's great." That that then that mirrors a little bit of yeah, the language I, I used in the book. A line from a short story I wrote in two thousand and eight, which is to say, like. Um, is that from Vicious yeah, you're, Static? Uh, yeah, it's from the Vicious Static. There's a video of it you can find online. <laughs> and you, I, I recommend you don't go find that video but online. But I, I read in the book that you yeah. know, they kept insisting, like, you're on this great journey, but there's actually no dangers or obstacles along the way. But let me, so it's like, okay, then there's, there is no greatness to this, this journey. human progress that you're describing from the curatorial approach to the full – manfulness, the recognition of the need to be staked in one's own life, to to be willing to make sacrifices for your daughter, is mirrored in the form of the book in the sense that you chose this sort of memoirish epistolary form where you're writing letters to your father. Yeah. On the first 30 to 40 pages, right, as in any sort of formal approach, there's something cloying is too strong, but it's a little jarring. Why? Because it's very vulnerable and exposed. Dear father, right? Yeah. Is an uncomfortable phrase for me to hear, to read. It makes me uncomfortable yeah. the first time. I actually worried that this would, would throw people off. Well, it does, but it, that's good. And actually that the whole tone of the book was so but open-hearted. You, but the open-heartedness. Because I'm defending open-heartedness in the book. That's right. But th- what happens is that where in the first 30 to 40 pages, there's something I, – I, I, I call it cloying because I would like to denigrate it by calling it cloying if you understand what I'm saying. Yeah. Because it exposes me as well. And I'll tell you, this book made me think about my own daughter and my own father and was very poignant. But what happens is that that – Dear father, that kind of formality, the the combination of sincerity and formality of the dear father in the middle of the book, once I'm caught up in your life and the things that are happening to you, becomes a you, a directness, a you. Now you're talking to your father, you, you say to him. Yeah. And it and that turn, right, is uh very, very powerful in the in the the current of the narrative to see that without the dear father, without the willingness to try the embarrassing expression at first, you couldn't get to the actual emotional commitment of the you that comes in the middle of the book. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. The, um, one of the things I, I wanted to do, um, both as like a personal project, um, 
and as an artistic endeavor in the book was to take my boyhood seriously, right? That there is this temptation as an adult and even as a father to kind of like dismiss childhood as this like, um, you know, children are obviously ignorant. Children are uh, unformed. Children, you know, parrot idiot stuff they hear on television or from their parents. They've, but the truth is I have to admit, and this is true, and it, it was good preparation and reflection as, I, as a father myself, is that actually these boyhood experiences deeply formed me. And I had this um, kind of unique view into the broken family because the situation that I was in, right – I, I, this book is not like Angela's Ashes where it's like you can't believe how um, miserable it is. Like, it's not that miserable. Uh, the book I think worked because the problem I describe of this broken family or this boyhood within a broken home or without a father in the home is very common. But my particular experience of it had this intensity to it because instead of seeing him only on weekends or every weekend, it'd be every three years. And so my memory of that would be especially intense. And so, and it's also why the book is short because it's, I'm not trying to describe changes over six or eight months good it's, for you it's more like yeah. i'm it's the right length i'm experiencing this short burst of my father and a reaction that shapes years of understanding afterwards you know i i yeah. there's a there's a passage about that um toward the end of the, it's at the end of the fourth letter from a very young age i vowed that if i had children i would not raise them in a broken home like mine but my fear is that no matter how hard I struggle to keep one together, I don't know how to repair the brokenness that surrounds the home, this malady that afflicts us all, that dissolves all connection between past, present, and future, this thing that makes our grandparents into strangers to us, that leaves us disconnected from each other, ill-equipped to meet these moments in life when real injustice, real sorrow, and real grief visit us. Mm. Um, which is uh, a lovely bit of writing. One book that I kept thinking about uh, as I was reading your book, I just read a sort of advanced copy of Thomas Chatterton Williams' Self-Portrait in Black and White. And uh, Thomas Chatterton Williams is a – it's a beautiful book. He's a biracial writer and it is about the birth of his daughter. And before his daughter was born, he sort of insisted, you know, I'm black and my daughter's going to be black um, – and he's, you know, married to a, a white French woman. And when his daughter's born, she comes out blonde, right? And it just sort of becomes sort of it, – it changes his conception about um, his ability to pass on that identity mm -hmm. to his daughter because no matter what he does, she, you know, she will never be able to claim that being like a blonde white girl – but also it changes his conception of this notion of identity as a whole. And he talks about at one point um, 
Uh, and, you know, he talks about how our identities are in constant negotiation between the story we tell about ourselves and the narratives our society likes to recite, between the face we see in the mirror and the image recognized by the people and institutions that happen, that surround us. And in his upbringing, he had a sort of different family situation and that he actually found it valuable thinking about it now to not be part of a we, right? That um, uh, ultimately there's this sort of constant insistence on seeing himself in the very particular and very painful history of black America, right? Um, and that he can't reconcile not only with his daughter, but with his own past. And there's a moment where he's talking about his grandfather, his white grandfather on one side who refused to, to, to meet them and thinking that he has no more relationship to this person than like the sliver of his DNA, um, uh, when he you know takes like a 21 and me test that comes from Senegal, right? Like he doesn't have any particular sense of a Senegalese identification and this sort of like, you know, white racist who had disassociated himself from the family, you know, how does he incorporate all those things into his identity? And he ends up ultimately sort of quoting Camus and saying that the only thing that we can do in response to an unfree world is to act in, with, with such freedom, um, uh, that our very existence becomes an act of rebellion. I love Camus, and I quite like Thomas Sheridan Williams as well, but I am afraid that I find these explanations to be of great service to exceptional uh, artists, such as the two of them, and rather inadequate for a great many people who require stories to tell about themselves that they're not always capable of generating in isolation. We live on stories, we live on narratives, and our histories are a kind of story that we tell ourselves about who we are and where we're going, and we shouldn't be bound uh, like prisoners by those stories, but we delude ourselves sometimes in dangerous ways, I think. Um, uh, and, and look, some stories need to be escaped from. Not all stories are, are equal, not all histories are equal. But clearly, there is a political element in what, what you're writing, Michael, because what you're writing, in yeah. part, in the connection to the Easter Rising of 1916, is to say that these men of the Easter Rising, whom Irish history has treated uh, as gallant heroes at certain moments, as in revisionist moments, as, as less heroic you know that that yeah, they, as fanatical as fanaticals and uh, right all, all of these things but that these men had they not been so directly indebted to their sense of their own history had they not felt such a direct and intimate connection to their history would have been incapable of the kind of dreaming that inspired the action yes. that led to the independence of Ireland. Had do, they do, not do you want to explain that? Because we haven't actually... Okay, so l l let me take, a, take that on. So um, the, the book talks a bit about uh, certain men that were involved in the Rising or in the nationalist movements before the Rising, guys like Owen McNeil, who was a historian and language activist, Patrick Pierce you know, the leader of the Easter Rising. And basically this rising took place in 1916 at Easter, deliberately chosen as this idea of the resurrection of the nation. And it was done during the middle of World War One because, you know, Irish nationalists believed these slogans like Britain's uh, trouble is Ireland's opportunity. 
But they basically what they'd seen was they'd seen that the passage of home rule, this idea that there's going to be a parliament in Dublin restored to Dublin uh, underneath the parliament in Westminster as part of the United Kingdom. They saw that being undermined extra constitutionally, that arms were flowing into Ulster to Protestants to resist the imposition of home rule, possibly threaten civil war. Home rule was delayed at the start of the war. And so they saw, okay, we've got to make a more uh, prepared to defend home rule if it comes, but also be prepared to make a more radical break and actually connect with the more radical traditions of Irish nationalism, like Wolf Tone and others who preached full separation from England and that Ireland should not only be free, but Gaelic and not only Gaelic, but free. Um, and they felt this heavy hand of history that there was this tradition of Irish rebellion going back centuries. Um, and they feared that if they did not rebel in their generation, that in a sense, this would break the tradition of nationhood, potentially break the manhood itself of Ireland and leave it exposed to full cultural and political absorption in, as, an, as a kind of uh, semi-England, an England that never mat- matches up, but obviously not Ireland. And so they they organize a rebellion. Uh, it features mostly in Dublin. One that you say, as a piece of military planning, the rising in Dublin gave plenty of evidence of having been drawn up by a poet. Yeah. So <laughs> it was led by the, – the leaders were intellectuals and, and that may be one reason why it appeals so much to historians and mm-hmm. whatever as a rebellion. These weren't just you know thugs. These were writers, short story writers, um, and some communists, uh, you know, socialists like James Connolly's Citizen Army were involved. And basically the idea was we're going to do this and some of them believed maybe the Germans will come and notice our rebellion and land. But more likely we're going to lose. But at least there will be this honor in losing. And um, the rebellion lasts six days. The, the British rush over troops and a gunship into the River Liffey right in the heart of Dublin and start shelling the buildings that the rebels occupied. Dublin is wrecked in this tremendous fire. The rebels surrender. Patrick Pierce hands in his sword. And then the British begin um, arresting thousands of others, people who they believed might be sympathetic to the rising but weren't involved, really agitating people and then executing the leaders of the rising kind of one by one. And, you know, at that time, when they when the rising ended at first, they were kind of cursed by a lot of people as like, communist agitators and wreckers of the city but as their identity kind of became known as their stories became known and as these like romantic things happen like you know one of them gets married in the couple hours before the british shoot him right gets married in the prison um their memory their uh their proclamation of the republic becomes this thing that absolutely sets ireland's politics on fire in the next election, they the old Irish political establishment is completely thrown out. Sinn Féin comes in and we get the Anglo-Irish War and we're on the way towards separation, which is a graduated process. But this memory of the martyrs of 16 utterly transformed Irish life. 
Um, and there's two things about it that are interesting. Now, at the time, they're the fact that they were executed, that they, in many cases, like blessed their executors and commended them. You know, James Connolly said, "I pray for any man who does his duty." You know, before he goes. Uh, and is propped up in a chair and shot. Um, what happens is when that the spirit of that conflict kind of goes out into Irish history, the fact that there's this partition state that's created Northern Ireland that Irish people resent and wanted control of the whole island of Ireland, although a majority of people in those six counties did not want to join – um, when you get to the Troubles in the 60s, 70s, and 80s in Northern Ireland, people looked back on the 1916 Rebellion and said, actually, by putting this cult of doomed self-sacrifice in the heart of Irish nationalism, right. uh, the Rebels of 16 created an endless mandate for uh, useless violence. Right. Like um, – so, yeah, they may have handed in their sword after a week, but up here we're going through 30 years of bombings and hell. And, and there's – you know, you quote a letter from uh, Purse, I think it is, um, where he says, We may make mistakes in the beginning and shoot the wrong people, but bloodshed is a cleansing and a sanctifying thing, which um, – Yes, heady. Is, no, but it's not just that it's heady, right? It's that you explicitly say that you're moved by this. Yeah. Right? I mean well, – yeah, You yeah. say uh, Pierce is right. Yeah, I do, I do say Pierce is right. That The quote that you mentioned from Pierce, uh, I mention it in the context of um, – it's in another piece of art, The Plow in the Stars by Sean O'Casey, which is a play that was put on in the Abbey Theater in the 1920s. The Abbey Theater had been this theater in Ireland, part of the Irish Gaelic Renaissance – you know, W.B. Yeats and Lady Gregory put on all these like nationalist plays and so on. And O'Casey's play, The Plow and the Stars, is basically a socialist critique of the rising and basically says it shows all these men entranced by this romantic nationalism and then all these women attached to them who are paying the price for this conflict in untreated tuberculosis in uh you know checks from the front that can no longer come in checks that are needed to feed the the children and O'Casey has that line from Pierce quoted in the background and the men kind of saluting it mm-hmm. and it's it's supposed to repulse you and it that line was quoted endlessly in 2016 by a kind of intelligentsia that wants to undermine this mm-hmm. nationalist tradition in Ireland. And and I just say to my father, in fact, what I found in my because of the weightless upbringing that I had in the 90s um and and how it left me unprepared for the tragedy and disaster of my own mother's death in some ways and in some ways made me feel inadequate to the task of fatherhood that when I looked back at this tradition of self-sacrifice, I'm moved by it, like unalterably moved by right. it. Right. So, but I think I think this is where it becomes a sort of dangerous issue because there's self-sacrifice, right? And I, yeah. and that's something I think I'm sympathetic to. You know, I think the, the first episode we did, we talk about the the line from the Jeffrey Hill poem, um, Genesis. We live by blood, the hot, the cold. There is no bloodless myth shall hold. Um, 
and the sort of weight and importance of sacrifice and self-sacrifice. But that line is different. That's not about self-sacrifice. It's about that's doing a, violence. That's about doing violence. And that's a very different thing. Well, and to okay. say that the doing of the violence is not an inherently tragic thing, right? Um, no, it's an exhilarating thing. But is an exhilarating and sanctifying thing, I think that is a dangerous and poisonous place to get. And it sort of can turn uh, a type of nationalism that I'm much more sympathetic to into a I think a much more it is deadly da- and toxic. One. It is dangerous. It, it, he actually, there's even a, a kind of more, I don't know if it's just before that line in, in that one essay or just afterward where he talks about um, that this red wine is being poured out across Europe and there's never been a more august homage mm-hmm. to, offered to God than what's happening now. To be fair, that is the spirit of that. I mean, if you uh, were to look across Europe in those and, years. And that's, yeah. that, part of my defense of Pierce is that there are two things happening. One is that, That yes, spirit is psychotic. That, that, spirit, that spirit is everywhere in World War I. Everywhere. It's what is moralizing people in the middle of this war that is yeah. way more than people – Thought it would be especially among the intelligentsia, but, yeah. but you know, and, and you then can the right find there's there's an interesting book you, by you um, can find it in you know, Teddy Roosevelt and Thomas Mann, D. H. Lawrence. I mean, all uh, of these, all of these guys. But what is also happening, I th- I believe, is that Pierce himself was a kind of dandy intellectual um, language activist. You know, his mm-hmm. his his short stories that he had written in Irish were all of these like willowy women in the West, not yeah. about like. Um, feeding British people grenades for breakfast. And what I think is he is moralizing himself to do to do something that is very difficult for men to do, which is to do violence. And um and, and so yeah, he's he is going to this extreme of rhetoric. I will defend him also though on this point and why I connect this type of nationalism to this idea of fatherhood. I, I don't use these words in the book, but I've mentioned it a couple times in interviews since, which is that one thing that happens when you become a father or one thing you notice about yourself, or at least other fathers have told me this and I've told them this, is you know you have all these feelings of, you know, okay, am I adequate to this task? Mm-hmm. I want to be a better person. But you also, I think some of us at least, have this strange and even unsettling feeling of – in the face of this child, I am more ready to die and to kill. Like I am more ready to do if if it if it took it right. So yeah, more mm-hmm. ready to die. And you might think of a. Uh, uh, you you wouldn't insta- believe how many people Jake has murdered since the well, birth no, no, of his daughter. No, no, but you daughter. might think of something. You might you might think of something like, oh, you know, if the stroller is in the street and there's an oncoming yeah. bus, I'm going to jump out and push it, and and I'll take the hit. Of course, but also like. You know, okay, if something threatened this life, I would have to become strong, indomitable, and ready to do damage. And I think that is still a legitimate I, – I think to love something properly in extreme circumstances will require the willingness to – risk violence to yourself and do it do it yourself as well that there there is a that that fundamentally is a kind of a part of fatherhood is this 
sense of protection. I want you to remember that no bastard ever won war by dying for his country. He won it by making the other poor dumb bastard die for his country. Thank God we have a sovereign that protects us from bandits or other chaos in the normal day-to-day of things. I don't want to shrink from what the book is making of that politically, though, because I think it's more than just a duty to protect the child from oncoming traffic because the extension of that – Right is that the nation? But, yeah, the, his, the the nation sits in uncommon traffic potentially. That's and, right. But you say you say you know you, you talk about this idea of like the nation as a problematic but useful administrative unit, and then and and you dislike that notion and the notion of like wonks as the legislators of the world, whereas you say Ireland is a nation because men in uniform fought and died for it. Yeah. Oh, and Ireland is a nation because. Mothers, fathers, sons, daughters are connected to a place. Yep. And because mothers, fathers, sons, daughters are connected to a place and a tradition and each other, then they fight and die and, for it. And it has to be right? – right. Yeah, exactly. And I mean this cannot – I mean we're here at the tablet, right? Like this, this – Tablet. The, tab- the tablet's the Catholic or tablet. one. We're here at Tablet we're here at Magazine. Tablet. The Jewish one, the tablet's the Catholic one. All right. When the, we the do tablet, my Jewish right, memoir, we'll do it at the tablet. <laughs> because my sort of Catholic <laughs> describes the other one as bitter pill, right? Um, the So ta- we're at Tablet. So, you know, these ideas are, you know, mm-hmm. obviously something that – pops up in Zionism, right? Like this idea of like, okay, to preserve the nations, we're going to require this manhood, uh, this recovery of manhood. Reviving and, a language. And reviving so that, a language. I, I had a that. whole thing I wanted to get into with that, but we, it's like, but listen, the, the Hebrew Gaelic thing, you know, there is an argument to be made and there's a brilliant Persian, Israeli, now American novelist named Ruby Namdar who makes this explicitly, but there's an argument to be made that the greatest achievement, you know, civilizationally in Israel is the resurrection of Hebrew, which is this unbelievable accomplishment. It is to take a dead thing and make it alive again. I mean, it is astounding. It's a perfect symbol, right, of this idea of like reviving the nation itself. And of course, like, at this time, Herder and others are talking about like how language is so constitutive right, of right. the nation. The, it, right. Right. So but, but yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah you can see, see all these dangers. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to avoid that I, for the moment. I, I, yeah. Well, I, I did want to bring this up because one of the things you talk about, you talk about a, another Piracetic ghost. It's yes. like, how do you, you know, the, the ghost of the nation of this claim on you? And, and uh, I think you referenced Burke's thing with like a contract with the dead, right? Um, yeah. And, you know, how do you. Uh, appease a ghost like you do what it wants right yeah you do the thing it asks and there's a great isaiah berlin uh speech two enemies of enlightenment uh where he talks about haman um and uh this moment where there's this like lutheran theologian who is trying to reform the german language and he wants to get rid of the letter h because you know it comes in places where it's not actually adding to any sound right so you know you think of like Sarah spelled S A R A or Sarah with an H. It doesn't doesn't make any difference. Um, and you know, this makes Haman furious. Um, 
He said that the letter H, of course, was exactly as it had been described as being. Certainly it was no use. The notion of getting rid of things because they're of no use seemed to him the worst of all possible reasons for any form of action. Dom wishes to get rid of this poor letter H, he says, in order to create a spick-and-span world, a kind of swept and garnished world in which everything shall be useful, everything shall be clear, everything shall be elegant, and everything shall be symmetrical. Um, this leaves out from the world everything which is irregular, irrational. All it leaves is Leibniz's sufficient reason. If things do not have sufficient reason, out with them. Sufficient reason, says Haman, is a lamentable, poor, blind, naked little thing. Your life, says the letter H suddenly, addressing itself to Baron Grimm in Paris, who supported Dam in this matter. Your life is what I am myself, a breath. God has created poor little useless H, but he will not be allowed to perish from the earth. And then there is a tremendous hymn to God, which immediately follows. Those who wish to prove God by design have no faith in such as me, says the letter H. Such a God exists only by the logic of vain, puffed-up logicians. And the logician is obviously prior to, to the God whom he creates. In such a liter universe, I, little H, could not survive. But thanks to the true God, I do and shall. And it's sort of a kind of delightful, but then Berlin points out like, and you can see, like, it's a short road from there to just preserving everything which is old but useless, that people have no attachment to, to yeah. chaining us to all kinds of uh, antiquated forms that are no longer sufficient for, uh, you know, the, the current mode of life. And I think one of the things that we're dealing with in these conservative manifestos um, and that's sort of interesting to me about the book is there is no – just doing what the ghost wants, right? I mean, and also which ghost and which form of life and that, that, that we're talking about. And so it's really more a function of what are the old forms that you take up and refashion? And what is the, what is the danger in adhering to the ghost out of nostalgia or romantic attachment or even sort of valid artistic interest? Well, in my... I try to give a kind of suggestive answer to that in the book, or at least I don't know if it comes through as a suggestive answer, but that in a sense it's the um, – it's posterity that chooses the ghosts that in in a weird way, um, you know, this story of my daughter reconnecting me to my father and and reconnecting me to my mother. And in fact, if you read the book – my daughter's entry into my life causes me to recapitulate my mother's mania for Ireland mm -hmm. in my own life, right? I, I, it's a book about fatherhood, but what I do is I imitate everything my mother did. Yeah. Um, and what 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 I suggest at the end is that this, uh, you know, it's not this abstract contract between the living, unborn, and the dead, but this spiritual ecology, and that, in a sense our children's needs are what determine what is suddenly relevant from the dead past and what is suddenly now alive in it. Uh, and it's almost like our children awaken in us this ability to hear in our past personal or national, what is needed for the future. And so this idea that in a sense, like, uh, you know, my, you know, little, subversive suggestion in this book is that some of the problems maybe that we're trying to address as conservatives on the right and through these nationalist issues is that actually we're never going to generate solutions or this new paradigm or whatever it is um, until we start acting 
on behalf of actual children in front of us. That 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 in a sense yeah. the children will bring it out of us. Will bring out what's great about our ancestors or our our people. This is it's interesting, right? Because uh, here we come full circle back to these American conservative manifestos. So you've written a book that I would describe as being about a boy reconnecting through his daughter with his father's Irishness that he learned through his mother. So yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. uh, but this whole book, which is about the connections between family and nation is about Ireland, but you're in America. Yeah. And the book at no point really talks about American nationalism. Yeah. This has right? been a criticism. Of a couple well, of people's levels. I, I'm not, uh, I don't offer it as a criticism, but I think it's obviously, yeah, it must have been a deliberate choice, right? And well, and one of the things I take from it, I'll cut you off because I don't actually want to know whether it was a deliberate choice or not. I've decided for myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you can't disrupt my reading of the book. Um, look, the the thing that you almost make explicit at the end, but you don't quite make explicit, is that America is the fatherless nation, which has become curatorial towards itself, right? So why do why or, or do, that dredges up the past to um, condemn? Yeah, yeah, or pre- pretends that it has no past which it cannot pass judgment on and escape if it so chooses. Why do so many people, myself included, who has not only a father who I grew up with and was very close to, but who also has both a sense of attachment to America and a sense of attachment to Israel and a deep like sense of investment in nation. Why did I still feel so strongly this sense of this withering curatorial approach to life? It must have been that that was the spirit of the age in a sense. And yes. Why was that the spirit of the age? It was the spirit of the age because the nation, insofar as it was – composed of these families had lost that self-knowledge or the families had lost that self-knowledge and, and there, this the nation had as well. And so it had turned to this, uh, this individualistic, uh, atomized construction, you know, it's, it's, Never quite explicit, but you walk right up to it at the end of the oh, book. I, I would also say, you know, there's there's a point that so there's a point that Brian Stevenson makes, and this maybe brings me back to um, some of the things that Thomas Chatterton Williams is grappling with. Like, you know, when you're talking about the uh, the reasons to condemn American history, right, um, and sort of genocide and land theft and all these other things, and there's these sort of like you have these little kind of nods to Tanazi Coates uh uh throughout the book. Um, you know, one of the points that, that Brian Stevenson makes is he's you know he talks about sort of going to Germany and seeing the way in which the Holocaust is memorialized and is a is a part of the landscape, right? And you know, if you sort of walk through Berlin and um whereas the way in which American history for segments of the population has been sort of self-consciously erased or changed. And, you know, one of the the sort of, you know, the construction of the museum uh, in the South where they talk about sort of the history of lynching is not in Stevenson's conception to condemn the nation, but that if we want to be a 
if you want to be a sort of healthy civic body, you can't obscure the past. Like these are ghosts too, right, right, who have a claim and that you actually need to acknowledge and deal with the history if you actually want to have this be I a functional would, thing. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree with that. The problem that we run into, I think, is that for those claims to be fruitful, for there to be a uh, – uh, for, for those claims to add up to something, they need to be on behalf of something. And if the, the claims are not made in a certain uh, – I'll just put this very crudely because I can't think of a more – subtle or sophisticated way to express it. But if there's not a kind of civic basis to the claims, if the claims aren't made on behalf of making us a more perfect union, I'll steal someone else's eloquence. If the, you know, if the history is avoided, that's a cop out. That's a dishonesty. That's a fraud. But if the history is summoned in a purely, uh, purely to, to castigate or to condemn um, and not on behalf of a more perfect union, I don't know I don't know what it leads to. I don't know that it, it I don't know that it serves justice finally. Well the one of the things in the in the book, right, is I, I'm trying to intimately connect this this story of enchant boyhood enchantment, adolescent disillusion. And then manful acceptance and reconciliation with this kind of national self-consciousness in Ireland. And, um, you know, one of the things I might suggest is I said earlier that um, the story of home, leaving home and then returning home as this kind of primordial human uh, narrative that's woven into our religious texts, that's woven into our daily routines and our self our self understanding, even if we reject it in some way. I wonder if that is not also true of nations that there is this kind of spirit of the age where um, you drift away. I mean, I think of uh, Azar Gott has this book Nations, which really informs my kind of view of what both the history of nations and, and also like it kind of is why I hate this this kind of watered down Benedict Anderson stuff that you get at Vox about what nationalism is. But he kind of talks about nas- nations as a nationalism as this almost peasant uh, project of reclaiming the territory from – uh, a ruling caste that has disconnected from the land, the customs, and the and the people themselves, right? That there's almost this natural tendency of rulers to kind of collude with each other in these aristocratic castes across national boundaries. And that there's this almost peasant tradition of reclaiming. And you get these periods of nationalism when there's this unsettled um, uh, feeling to things and also when – Lots of people are moving in from the countryside into the city, right? Then they kind of like feel this uh, – both this profound sense of loss and this desire to reclaim an identity that seems in jeopardy. So I'm wondering if if the story I'm telling or if the, the political ructions we're seeing are kind of a, a story that is written uh, and that we are just char- still characters in and we're experiencing – 
that this this social body, these civic bodies are experiencing these stories just as we are. What better note to end on? Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for coming. This was awesome. Yeah. And um, (laughs) so much material. Next episode is going to be. Uh, we're doing the art is going to be public enemies. It takes a nation of millions to hold us back. And the manifesto is going to be the Hugo ball Dadaist manifesto, not the Tristan, whatever one, the Hugo ball one. So, uh, tune in for that. Thank you so much.